Good afternoon, everyone. The meeting will come to order. Welcome to the February 5th, 2015 meeting of the Neighborhood Services and Safety Committee of the San Francisco Board of Supervisors. My name is Eric Marr. I'm the chair of the committee. To my right is our former chair and now vice chair, Supervisor David Campos, and to my left is Supervisor Julie Christensen. Our clerk is Mr. Derek Evans, and I'd also like to thank um, the staff from SFGTV for staffing this meeting as well. Uh, Mr. Clerk, do you have any announcements? Thank you, Mr. Chair. Please make sure to silence all cell phones and electronic devices. Completed speaker cards and copies of documents to be included in the file should be submitted to the clerk. Items acted upon today will appear on the February 24th, 2015 Board of Supervisors agenda unless otherwise stated. Thank you, Mr. Evans. Please call item number one. Item number one is a hearing to consider the issuance of a Type 40 on-sale beer license to Fillmore Billiards located at 1530 Fillmore Street in District 5. Thank you. And I know we have a report. Um, I think um, Lieutenant Falzone is not with us, but we have the report from, um, from our ALU staff. Yes, good afternoon, Supervisors. And uh, thank you for having us. My name is Officer Al Duarte, and I'm here to represent Lieutenant Falzone on the matter regarding 1530 Fillmore Street. And this is uh, on behalf of um, Mr. Neymoon Park. Ben C. Sun has applied for a Type 40 on-sale beer license issued by the Department of Alcoholic Beverage Control for 1530 Fillmore Street. Mr. Park has opened a billiard hall and is attempting to comply with the request of his many patrons to serve beer. It should be noted that during the application process, a notification of 500-foot mailer was done on April 8, 2013, and a notice to the public was posted on March 28th of 2013. In regards to statistics, the police calls for service from November 2013 through November 2014 only had one police call for this location with zero police reports issued out of this location. The San Francisco plot, which is number 543, unfortunately does sit in a high crime area and had a reported 325 police reports for 2013. The census track information is that it sits on track 0159.00 with a population track of 4,350 people. The premises is currently located in an undue concentration area. Letters of protest, there were zero filed with the ABC, and with letters of support, there were zero filed with the, with the ABC. The department's recommendation to the matter is that there is no opposition to from Northern Station, and the ALU recommends approval with the following five conditions. Condition number one, the petitioner shall utilize electronic surveillance and recording equipment that is able to view the interior and exterior of the premises. This electronic surveillance shall be util, utilized during operating hours. Said electronic recording shall be kept at least 30 days and shall be made available to the department and police department upon request or in response to a valid search warrant. Condition number two. Sales, services, and consumption of alcoholic beverages shall be permitted from 12 p.m. noon until 12 a.m. midnight, Sunday through Wednesday, and from 12 p.m. noon until 2 a.m. Thursday through Saturday. Number three. The sale of beer and beverages for off-sale consumption is strictly prohibited. Number four, no noise shall be audible beyond the area under the control of the licensee as defined on the ABC 257 submitted by the applicant. 
Number five, the exterior of the premises shall be equipped with lighting of sufficient power to illuminate and make easily discernible the appearance and conduct of all persons on or about the premise. Additionally, the position of such lighting shall not disturb the normal privacy and use of any neighboring residences. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Or thank you, Officer Duarte. Let me ask if Mr. Moon is here to um, make a few remarks, if you would like. Or Mr. Moon Park. Yeah, and Mr. Park, just for your knowledge, we usually check in with the supervisor for the district that um, your new business is in, um, that supervisor, London Breed, and then also we are interested in the community outreach that you've done. It seems like there's not that much or there's no um, opposition, but if you could talk a little bit about um, your efforts to secure the permit, but also how you've outreached the community. All right. Uh, this is Mr. Park, and my name is Benton, and I'm a close friend of Mr. Park who is trying to help him with all this process. And first of all, uh, we did get in touch with the uh, Supervisor Bree's office. Uh, I, per their uh, advice, what we have done was in January, uh, we start uh, getting in touch with our community neighborhoods, including uh, lower uh, Fillmore Merchants Association, which we attended and presented our case to them for their support. In return, we got their full support uh, from the presidents along with all the members. And briefly, uh, let me go ahead and uh, talk about us from the inception. We opened the uh, billiards in November of 2012. And after about a year, uh, we got a lot of inquiries from our customers. Uh, asking us to provide them with beers, which at the time we did not have an ABC license, so we were not able to. So we started the ABC license process in 2013, not knowing that the, uh, eight, the city requires us to have the change of uh, business use from a billiards to a bar, which we uh, got in touch with the building departments, went through the uh, building department and the planning department, and we finally got approved in August or August of 2014. So what we have done so far is that we have reapplied with ABC license. As the uh, police officer here uh, just uh, explained, that our initial uh, ABC, uh, the letters that went out to the neighborhood, that was done in 2014, and another 500, the residence area went out in 2014 as well. And as far as what I know at this moment is that there is no complaints from both times. And uh, currently we have two billiards which has no pockets. We have one table, tennis table, and we have four pocket uh, pool tables. So we accommodate to very different type of uh, customers who wants to play with pocket balls or... Did you say you have table tennis there Yes, too? we do. Okay. And a lot of people come there, do, do, do their uh, exercise. They sweat quite a lot. I have done that before too. And you get sweat a lot because since we are within a closed environment, it's a good, good form of exercise. And as a first-time business owner, we didn't know about the procedures or you know what we had to do but as we as this is a going process we are learning from our own experience and we are a business where people could come all walks of life 
whether it's a senior citizens or young people, they can come and enjoy the uh, pleasure of playing billiards or pocket pool if they uh, want to. And on top of that, if we were to give them a chance to sell beer, you know, they could have a, a very cold, nice cup, uh, glass of uh, beer as well while they are playing. And in the end, we will strive to become a more active uh, business partners in our neighborhood by joining other merchants, not only the lower Fillmore, but maybe uh, upper Fillmore Merchants Association as well. And we will try to be more active in our uh, community. Thank you. Thank you so much. Any questions, colleagues? Let's, let's open this up for public comment. Is there anyone from the public that would like to speak? Seeing none, public comment is closed. And we have a motion from Supervisor Campos. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Thank you for your presentation. And uh, given that there has been community outreach through support from the district supervisor, uh, I move that we move this item forward with a positive recommendation. Thank you. And can we do this without objection? Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Moon. Thank you. Thank you. Mr. Evans, please call the next item. Item number two is a hearing to consider the issuance of a Type 40 on-sale beer license to George Rush for the Roxy Theater located at 3117 16th Street in District 8. Thank you, and I believe we have a report from Inspector Duarte or Inspector Nellie Gordon. Thank you again, and good afternoon again. Officer Duarte representing Lieutenant Dave Falzone, and I'm sorry, I wanted to clarify some things that we were just discussing. This is for 3336 24th Street? 3117 16th Street. Thank you very much. Sure. So the matter at hand is the Roxy Theater, 3117 to 3125 16th Street. George Rush, on behalf of the Roxy Theater, has filed an application with the California Department of Alcoholic Beverage Control seeking a Type 40 on-sale beer for 3117 and 3125 16th Street, located between Valencia and Guerrero Street. It should be noted that during the application process, a notification mailer was sent out within 500 feet on October 16, 2014. A notice to the public was posted on October 3, 2014. When it comes to statistics, the police calls received from October 2013 through October 2014 was one police call with zero police reports issued for the address. The plot information is as follows. That this is located in plot 413. It is located in a high crime area with 230 reported crimes in 2013. The state census track has it as tracked 0202.00 with a population track of 6,269 and unfortunately does sit in an undue concentrated area. There were zero letters of protest filed with the ABC and zero letters of support. Mission Police Station did not oppose this application and the ALU recommends approval with the following condition. Number one. Whenever the privilege of the license are being exercised, an employee or security guard shall monitor the activity within the theater as well as the lobby on a regular basis. Number two, all adult patrons shall wear a color-coded wristband to signify that they are off, excuse me, that they are of legal age. Number three, sales and service of beer may commence one hour before and the start of the event and must be suspended one hour prior to the scheduled end of the event. It should be noted that I spoke with, excuse me, not myself, but Inspector Gordon spoke with Shea Green, the Director of Operations at the Roxy Theater, on October 27th 
who stated that she agreed with the addition of the above recommended conditions. Thank you. Thank you, Inspector Duarte. Colleagues, are there any questions? If not, let's ask um, their attorney, Mr. George Rush, or Director of Operations, Shea Green, to, from the Roxy to come forward. Hello. As you said, I'm Shea Green. I'm the Operations Director of the Roxy Theater. Thank you for hearing me today. Um, first off, I was rec it was recommended to me to note a discrepancy in the title of the hearing. I just want to uh, confirm that this uh, request is just for 3117th 16th Street, okay. for the record. Thank, thank you. Thank you. Um, this is an important uh, step for the Roxy Theater because it will provide us with some extra income in order to keep our uh, theater operational. It's kind of a tough time for small theaters these days, and this could do a lot to help us continue. Um, we did reach out with the mailer, as prescribed by the ABC, as noted. Um, and also, we talked to our neighbors, specifically Dalva Bar, which is on one side, and Rada's Market, which is on another. And they noted that, uh, literally and figurative, figuratively, we bring light to the neighborhood. Um, it is an area where um, you get folks hanging out on the street, but our bright neon, historic neon sign provides literal light to light up the shadows where people could lurk. Um, and then we also provide uh, customers that come specifically with a purpose to that stretch of 16th Street, which is also a beneficial uh, thing for the, for the block and the neighborhood. And also um, to note, the consumption of alcohol would be inside the theater. It would not spill out onto 16th Street and some of the, the adjoining area. So um, I don't know if you have any questions for me. No, I don't, but thank you, Ms. Green. Thank you. Um, now let's open this up for public comment. Is there anyone from the, from the public that would like to speak? Seeing none, public comments closed. Supervisor Campos. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I, I, um, I, I want to thank our uh, ALU and, and the applicant here. I'm strongly supportive of this application. Uh, it's hard to imagine a more important cultural institution than the Roxy around this area. Uh, they're a great community partner, and I think that this is something that would really help them uh, be uh, even more successful uh, as as we're struggling. As, as I know they're struggling. This is technically in District 8, but it's you know right uh, uh, next to my district. Uh, so I move this item forward uh, with a positive recommendation. Thank you, Supervisor Campos. And yeah, I can't wait to have a beer in the Roxy um, and can't wait for the next um, set of uh, repertory theater movies coming. Um, so colleagues, can we do this without objection? Thank you. Uh, Mr. Evans, please call the next item. Item number three is a hearing to consider the transfer of type 48 on sale general public premises license from 1000 Van Ness Avenue to 3336 24th Street in District 9 to Carolyn Santiago Brown for the 24th Street Bar. And we have Inspector um, Alberto Duarte again. Thank you for promoting me so often. It's actually the officer, but I appreciate I'm it. I'm sorry. That's okay. Uh, and again, good afternoon. Officer Duarte representing Lieutenant Dave Falzon on the matter at uh, 3336 24th Street, what would be the 24th Street Bar. And Caroline Brown on behalf of 24th Street Bar has applied for a Type 48 on sale general public premises 
transfer for the premises located at 3336 24th Street in the Mission District of San Francisco. The license is relocating from 1000 Van Ness Avenue. This premise was a bar previously, but the license for the bar relocated elsewhere. Ms. Brown would like to reestablish the bar to provide a convenience for the locals of the area. It should be noted that during the application process, a 500-foot notification mailer was sent out on December 15th of 2014, and a posting for the public was posted on December 15th, 2014. Police calls for the from December 2013 through December 2014, we had zero calls and zero reported issues and at, at the specific premises. However, the premises located on plot 454, which had 219 reported calls, which makes it and puts it in a high crime area. The state census track is as follows. It's located in tract 209.00 with a population track of uh, 4,372, and unfortunately does sit in an undue concentrated area. There were zero letters of protest filed with the ABC and zero letters of support as well. Mission Station had no opposition on the matter, and the AU recommends approval with the following conditions attached. Condition number one, graffiti shall be removed from the premises and all parking lots under the control of the grid licensee within 72 hours of the application. If the graffiti occurs on a Friday or a weekend day or on a holiday, the licensee shall remove the graffiti within 72 hours the following, the, beginning, the following beginning of the next weekday. Condition number two, the front door shall be kept closed at all times during this operation of the premises except in the case of the emergency or to permit deliveries. Said door not to consist solely of a screen or ventilated security door. Condition number three, no noise shall be audible beyond the area under the control of the licensee as defined in the ABC 257 form. Number four, the sale of alcoholic beverages for consumption off the premises is strictly prohibited. Number five, the petitioner shall be responsible for maintaining free of litter the area adjacent to the premises over which they have control. Number six, loitering. Loitering is defined as to stand idly about, linger aimlessly without lawful business. It is prohibited on any sidewalk or property adjacent to the licensee or to the licensed premise under the control of the licensee as depicted on the ABC 257 form. And condition number seven, the exterior of the premises should be equipped with lighting of sufficient power to eliminate and make easily discernible the appearance and conduct of all persons on or about the premises. Additionally, the position of such lighting shall not disturb the normal privacy and use of any neighboring residences. And um, just recently here, we just were contacted that there might be some amendments to condition number two. And I just wanted to remind the board that the storefront itself has no residences above it, but there are residents to, uh, adjacent to the building within 100 feet of what would be the proposed location. Thank you. Yeah, I just wanted to thank Officer Duarte for um, being extremely specific with these three examples. This one, you're really focused on the types of residences and businesses around it compared to the Roxy, which already has their own lighting, but this one, at least with condition number seven, requiring um, lighting. But I'm really appreciative of the hard work that goes from the ALU to looking at these conditions that are attached to these permits. But I thank you so much for the great work. Thank you very much, Mr. Um So I see no comments from colleagues. Let's open this up for public comment. Oh, Is the, there anyone? The applicant. Oh, yes, I forgot. I'm sorry. So. Um, we have the applicant for the license, um, which is Caroline Santiago Brown, Ms. Brown. Thank you. 
<laughs> Almost lucky. Uh, yes, my name is Caroline Santiago Brown, and um, I am a first-generation American, Cuban, Puerto Rican, from New York City. I came out here about 25 years ago, and so I kind of consider myself a native of San Francisco at this point. At this point. <clears throat> I have an intimate relationship with the Mission District. My mother lives at the Bethany Center on 21st and Cap. Uh, I owned property right on Bartlett, just a few doors down from this bar. And my husband, who is uh, <clears throat> passed away a couple years ago, was a real estate developer, and I was his um, office administrator. We built the Department of Public Health on mission between 23rd and 24th from scratch, nonetheless. Uh, a four-year project that uh, created a very intimate relationship with that neighborhood to say the least. <clears throat> when the space came up, I felt that this was perfect for me because I know the neighborhood, the good, the bad, the ugly, and uh, I love it. I love the people in the neighborhood, I love the grittiness of it, and maybe it comes from, comes from growing up in New York City myself. I like the cultural aspect of it, most importantly. Uh, as I mentioned, I grew up in New York. I was educated in New Jersey, Montclair State University. Uh, after my internship in Washington, D.C., um, I made a move out here and soon married my husband. We did real estate, um, had our children, and uh, he passed away, as I mentioned, two years ago, giving me a couple years to ponder if I wanted to go back into real estate development or stay in the original business that I grew up in my whole life, in the bar restaurant business. Choosing a 48 license uh, was actually very specific about that because I needed to go into a business that allowed me to work during the day while my children were at school. And then when they got out of school at 3 p.m., I could hand the keys off to a nice, young, strong man who can work till 2 in the morning, and I can go home and take care of my children. Um, over the last few months, I communicated with various parties from Davis Campos' office, originally Laura Lane and Nate Albee, Board of Food Supervisors Office, Derek Evans, with the Police Department, Officer Duarte, and Lieutenant Falzone, and originally an Officer Parker from the Station and Mission, who I reached out to and just wanted to get a feedback on what people thought about reopening this space, which was originally the attic. I spoke to, uh, uh, for lo long periods, uh, Edgar Oropesa at Zoning and Planning and Scott Sanchez, communicated with small business, Martha Yanez, and Calle 24's Eric Aguelo, who um, is very passionate about keeping uh, the, it, a local neighborhood bar and not gentrifying and creating another yet hipster bar in the mission. I first off want to say I too am grateful for everyone that I just mentioned uh, and their time that they've given me to hear me and um, support me and Officer Duarte, as you mentioned before, is incredibly diligent and um, extremely grateful for that because that has helped my process along. More importantly, I've personally reached out to the neighbors and the merchants. I've reached out to them by standing out in front and talking to people and expressing my intentions and introducing myself to the local merchants. I have posted a liquor license notice for the required 30 days and did the 500-person mail-out that was sent out to the immediate residents. 
And overall, the news of uh, my opening this neighborhood bar again has been very well received and um, a lot of excitement has been expressed in the neighborhood about opening their neighborhood bar again. Any questions for me? Thank you, Ms. Brown. Supervisor Campos. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you, Ms. Brown, and, and thank you. If, uh, actually, I have a quick question for you if you don't, if you don't mind coming back, and thank you for uh, uh, all that your family has done for the community and the fact that you are committed to continuing to, to be present. Uh, and, and we are very appreciative of uh, what our ALU does, and I know that they take a lot of things into consideration. Uh, but I, I do have a concern about one of the conditions, uh, uh, condition two, specifically the second piece of that condition. Uh, I'm wondering if you can speak to that. Uh, I, I am, I am uh, uh, considering whether we should strike the second sentence in that, which is uh, right now it says, uh, said doors not to consist solely of a screen or ventilated security door. And I know that, uh, you know, the issue of noise, ventilation, those are really important issues. And so uh, I think that maybe the way it's written right now, it could actually, uh, you know, pr prevent you from having uh, uh, ventilation. So, so I'm wondering uh, if you can speak to that, because uh, I, I, I understand the concern that the ALU has. I just don't know if that second sentence is really uh, useful. Um, my feeling is, my plan is to open the operation Monday through Sunday, and it would be hours from 3 p.m. till closing at 2 a.m. So it won't be open in the afternoon. Uh, opening at 3 p.m., you know, I, I, I spend a lot of time there during, now during the daytime, so I don't think, uh, I don't, the, the noise level I'm not concerned about because it's not going to be that kind of bar where we're going to have some DJ or live music or even a, uh, piped in music. It's going to be fairly reasonable and moderately low. Um, so I'm not afraid of noise coming out into the street. Well, I am concerned about the bar not having enough ventilation by having doors closed. It is a very small space. We don't have an HVAC system. Um, I am uh, installing a fan system that's going to pull the air through the bar, but uh, having fresh air would really lend itself to a better environment in the bar, and I think the neighbors would actually really appreciate if they're sitting there. The entrance of the bar has is going to be the seating of the bar. The bar is being moved to the back of the room. So people sitting in the front are going to really appreciate that door being opened and getting air and getting light. I'm changing the windows out so we can get some more light into the room. So I think I don't want to oppose Officer Duarte <laughs> or anyone, really. I, I'm, I'm really all about trying. I'm eager to please, and I'm trying to make everyone happy. But I think having the door open at least once in a while would lend itself to a better place and not create that dark, seedy bar feeling that a lot of little dive neighborhood bars can lend itself to when the doors close. It's almost like there's a dirty secret going on in there. I want to keep it open and airy and light. So I would prefer not to have that condition and having a door closed if I don't have to. Thank you. Thank you. Let's open this up for public comment. Is there anyone from the public that would like to speak? Public comment is closed. Supervisor Campos. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. And again, I want to thank uh, Officer Duarte and the ALU. And I want to thank Ms. Brown for all the work that she has already done. And uh, we're excited about, uh, about this opening. 
and again, I, I am fine with most of the conditions that have been laid out, but I, I uh, make a motion to strike the second sentence of condition number two. Uh, that reads said doors not to consist solely of a screen or a ventilated security door. Uh, I actually think that having ventilation is a good thing, and I think that this is someone who uh, will work with the city to make sure that all of the concerns of the community are taken into account, including noise. But I actually think that this would be uh, more useful than not, so I make that motion. Thank you. And we have it seconded. Can we take that amendment without objection? And then on the item as amended, can we do that? Move, move this item forward. Yes. Thank you. Thank you so much. I can't wait to try the, the 24th Street Bar, the place you go where everyone knows your name. <laughs> sounds great. Thank you. Thank you so much, Ms. Brown. Thank you to Inspector Nellie Gordon and um, Officer Duarte as well. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Evans, please call the next item. Item number four is a resolution designating Edgewood Center for Children and Families as an evaluation and treatment facility pursuant to California Welfare and Institutions Code Section 5151 for youth ages 5 to 17 and authorizing the Director of Behavioral Health Services to enter into a designation agreement with said facility. Thank you. And I know we have a presentation from the Department of Public Health staff. Yes. Hi. Thank you. Good afternoon. Um, I have some documents I'd like to pass out. I have... Um copies of our PowerPoint, and also Edgewood has some letters of support from their neighbors. So I believe Allison Lesbedge. Allison Lesbader. And, um, and also Sneha Patil are here from DPH. Okay. okay. And I have Dr. Young and Dr. Anderson here from Edgewood. And if you, I don't know if you need more. Okay, here you go. Okay. Thank you. Okay, thank you so much for hearing us today. Um, let me start out by why we are here and what we're requesting. We're here to request the Board of Supervisors to approve Edgewood a Crisis Stabilization Unit to be designated a 5151 facility for children and youth in San Francisco who are in psychiatric crisis. A 5151 designation for the Edgewood Crisis Stabilization Unit will allow San Francisco youth who are in psychiatric crisis to be taken directly to a specialized youth-oriented facility. Probably wondering what a crisis stabilization unit does. Well, it provides stabilization and psychiatric care in a youth and family-friendly setting. It provides a clinical intervention, including individual family, group, and psychiatric care, providing linkage and case management to ensure helpful follow-up services, and behavioral stabilization to avoid emergency room and psych emergency services for children, youth, and families. This is a 23-hour facility, so children and youth come into this facility. They stay for 23 hours. Um, the team there tries to stabilize them. We're trying to avoid a psychiatric hospitalization. Most of our psychiatric hospitals for children and youth are out of county. We have one facility in San Francisco, that's St. Mary's Macaulay Institute, but that only takes children that are 12 and older. We have no facilities within the city for children 12 and under, so they have to go out to Contra Costa County to John Muir. That's the closest one. So you can imagine how difficult that is for families. Um, who does the crisis stabilization unit serve? It serves children who are experiencing psychiatric distress, including traumatized children, families who are trying to keep their children safe, 
children experiencing depression and anxiety, and we have so far served approximately 200 individuals. Why we're asking for the facility to become a 5151 designated facility is that it will eliminate children and families from being re-traumatized in adult settings. At this point, when children and youth are in psychiatric crisis, they are often sent to psych emergency services at San Francisco General or hospital emergency rooms. You can imagine how difficult this is for the children and their families to be sitting there while they're already in a crisis situation and being in either a hospital emergency room, which is often not equipped to deal with psychiatric crises, or at our San Francisco General PES, where that is a great facility. It's really hard for children and families to be in an adult setting. Um, we're hoping to relieve the San Francisco Police Department by um, being a facility that will accept children efficiently and safely. And we're also, as I previously said, hoping to reduce unnecessarily hospitalizations by providing family-focused, immediate care, and follow-up. We're hoping that by keeping children in San Francisco, they'll be closer to their current mental health providers, their schools, and their community and support systems. How will this improve the care for children? So in our current system, um, like I mentioned, when children are in psychiatric crisis, they need to go to psych emergency or to ERs. Um, most of our youth are hospitalized out of county, We're trying to avoid unnecessary hospitalizations by being able to stabilize children in a 23-hour facility. And um, we have limited referral sources if we're trying to get providers to go out of county to see their clients. It's difficult. This way, everybody's right in county. It's much more efficient. And in our proposed system, uh, youth will be seen at a family-friendly unit, which the crisis stabilization unit is. Um, it's in San Francisco. The interventions are family-focused. And of course, there's easier access to immediate follow-up. Extensive community outreach has been done in accordance with Prop I. We've had two community meetings with over 100 people in attendance. We provided interpreters. We had flyers distributed two weeks prior to all meetings, including community meetings and the Health Commission meeting. Um, flyers were distributed one week prior to today's Neighborhood Services and Safety Committee meeting. The Health Commission has voted unanimously to approve the 5151 designation for Edgewood. talk a little bit about our community response. Um, many of the neighbors did express support. Edgewood has been a good neighbor for over 100 years. It's a longstanding institution, and the neighbors did appreciate the service that they provide to the children and youth of San Francisco County. Understandably, some neighbors expressed concern about noise and safety. Edgewood has responded by creating a dedicated 24-7 phone line for neighbors, a no-siren policy. That means that when children are brought to the facility, either in ambulances or in police cars, there won't be a siren. And the 28th Avenue entrance um, has been remodeled to add security. So I have Edgewood here to answer any additional questions that you may have regarding this resolution, or any questions that you might have regarding the resolution. Supervisor Campos. Thank you. Uh, let me just be very clear from the outset that I, I, I understand the importance and the need for this service. Um, and, uh, you know, I had a conversation with uh, our public health director today specifically about this item. Uh, I do believe that uh, at some point the city needs to designate a facility uh, as an alternative uh, because right now there's only one facility that actually provides that service. 
Uh, and so I don't question the, the, the need for it. I don't question uh, the fact that, that, uh, that this should happen and should happen expeditiously. I do believe, though, that we need to be very careful about uh, what kind of entity we designate. Uh, and I have questions, some serious concerns about Edgewood. Uh, when, you, when you're talking about a unit or a, an entity that provides uh, this kind of uh, service uh, for children, this is a very important work. It's very sensitive work. And the quality of the work is ultimately dependent on the workers, the people that are on the ground doing this work. And I just want to note that uh, I am very troubled by the fact that over the last few months, we have received a number of complaints and concerns from workers at Edgewood. And uh, my office has actually reached out to Edgewood to address some of those concerns. And the response was actually pretty dismissive. And uh, so uh, I think if you ask uh, some of the workers who are familiar with, the, with this facility, who are familiar with this entity, they will tell you that uh, this is not an agency that, at least from the workers uh, who are uh, on the ground, uh, uh, treats their workers well. Uh, this is not an agency that uh, uh, recognizes that in order to treat workers, that the reason why you need to treat workers well is because that has a direct impact on the quality of the service that's provided to families. If you don't treat workers well, that creates turnover. If the working conditions of these individuals are not, are not uh, sound and strong, uh, that leaves a lot, of, a lot to be desired in terms of the quality of the service that is provided. Uh, so I, I will be voting against this uh, item, uh, and I would urge my colleagues uh, that we send a very clear message today that while indeed it is the case that we need to uh, provide this service, we want to make sure that the entity that is designated to provide a very important service, a very sensitive service, is one uh, that is going to have the kind of work environment that will be conducive to providing the best service to these families. I don't believe that Edgewood is, that, is at that place, and so I would urge my colleagues to join me in rejecting this item. Thank cool. you, Supervisor Campos. Um, I just wanted to add that I, we just received some letters of support, but I also have letters of protest from um, a number of people, and I just wanted to ask maybe if the Edgewood rep can address the there's a number of National Labor, Neighbor, National Labor Relations Act or unfair labor practice charges that will be heard on February 17th in San Francisco. And I'm just wondering if you could address the working conditions. And as some of the workers are saying, extremely high turnover rate of the staff there and what type of organization um, we're talking about. And I, I know Edgewood, too, because my twin brother lives a couple blocks away. Friends have lived across the street. And I'm really appreciative of the letters of support that we've received, too. Yes, it's unfortunate in the timing of our crisis stabilization unit because it is a separate issue from our, our um, conversations with our staff. I think if you came to Edgewood at this point, you would see that the majority of our staff um, are in favor of, of this particular unit. The issues are about how aggressively, how quickly can we enhance uh, compensation, enhance health care benefits, and, and those kinds of things. 
And so um, if the pleasure of the committee, I'd really like to separate those two issues. So yes, there is one issue, which is the, the need for crisis stabilization unit in the city county of San Francisco to help the children and families um, that are dealing with these um, psychological crises. At the same time, there's Edgewood and the aggressive measures we, we've been taking to try to enhance our compensation, enhance our benefits to our staff. Uh, we have not been able to keep up at the pace that we would like to because, as you know, the cost of living in San Francisco is escalating and it's been much uh, you know, difficult to, uh, uh, to retain staff and to maintain the pace of increased um, pay and benefits that we'd like to. Uh, but that said, we have made really aggressive um, measures to be able to do that. Um, as you know, at the end of the day, Edgewood is a nonprofit organization. So over 85% of our funding comes from public entities, um, mainly San Francisco Department of Public Health and San Francisco Child Welfare. We have not received an increase in our rates in over 10 years. It makes it difficult to you know, keep a pace by um, increasing our, our compensation to our staff. And, and yet we still haven't been able to do that, just not as quickly as, as many of our staff would like to. Also that said, um, earlier this year there was a union vote um, at Edgewood and it did not pass. The majority of our, of our staff do not want to have unionization within Edgewood because they felt they, they agree that we are trying to move things along and, and certainly everyone would like to move it along faster. Thank you. Supervisor Campos? Yeah, I'm actually curious as to how you can uh, come up here and say that the issue of working conditions is not relevant to the service that you provide these families. I guess I would argue the working conditions um, around compensation and health care benefits are a continued struggle that as a whole organization, our, our staff, our managers and senior executives um, work together to try to resolve in terms of whether the working conditions are suitable to, to manpower or to staff up a, a new crisis stabilization unit. We've also been able to hire 20 to 25 additional new staff to be able to help support this. So I, I see them as, as, as not related. Okay, well, I, I actually respectfully disagree. I think that there are directly interlinked, especially given that, as you noted, there is so much public funding that is received. Uh, so let me ask you this, uh, because one of the questions that has been uh, raised is the issue of uh, giving the workers the ability to organize, which is a very basic thing uh, that, that we respect. Uh, can, do you believe in the ability of workers to organize freely? Certainly, and, and, and we... Um some of the letters from the National Labor Union notwithstanding, because we are contesting those, we did allow that vote to go forward. So there was a, an open vote, a free vote, and our staff overall voted against it. Okay, I, I actually think that the record uh, sort of speaks for itself, and uh, I, I think it's unfortunate because I think that this is something that uh, is, a, is a very important and needed service. Uh, but I don't believe that we should go down the path of uh, uh, creating this kind of uh, relationship with an entity that, uh, unfortunately, uh, the people who work there uh, have very serious concerns uh, about the way those workers are being treated. And if you treat your workers that way, you can only imagine uh, how you interact with uh, the families that are served. There is a, a minor group of folks at Edgewood who, don't, who are impatient and feel like we haven't moved along as, as quickly as, as we would like to. And the majority, again, the majority um, do not feel the same way. And, and I invite you to come out and take a look at Edgewood to, to tour the facility and see what we're trying to do with the 
limited funds that we have and, and what we've been able to accomplish with, with, within those constraints. I, I, I take you up on that offer. I, I certainly uh, I, I look sure forward like to, to that. I guess I just wanted to add in that any time a nonprofit hires Littler Mendelssohn, notorious um, union-busting anti-labor firm at their huge costs, makes me question whether the funds could be used in other ways. And if you're really trying to respect and work in partnership with the workforce there. But that's, that's just right off the top of my head from seeing some of the documents in front of me. Supervisor Campos? If I may, you know, if, if there is any relevant information that you have uh, to provide to the board, I'm open to it. I, uh, I, I would be interested in finding out exactly what's going on uh, with these workers. Uh, and to the extent that you're talking about compensation, you know, any information you have along those lines would be greatly appreciated. But I would also hope that you include in that information relative to how much your uh, administrators and executives uh, get paid uh, so that we have a full picture of what's actually happening. So I guess just for our purposes, because we were hoping to move on this sooner than later, um, I guess we're pretty much at a standstill right now with designating this facility. And so um, could you maybe talk to us a little or talk to me a little bit more about what next steps we would need to, to move forward? Well, what or I indicated to, 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 to the Director of Public Health is, you know, I know that you need to find a facility uh, to designate. I hope that you find a facility that actually, uh, you know, is treating its workers well. I don't think you have that here, and so I'm certainly not prepared to move forward with this item. I, I can only speak for myself, but I think that, uh, uh, I think that it would be a mistake for us to, to mm -hmm. move this item forward. Will this then, just so I understand the process, but this then move towards a full vote, a full board vote? So I think what comes out of committee then would go to the full board, yes. Okay. And do, and do you know when that hearing will happen? When the board, I'm sorry, when the board well, will vote? Go ahead, Supervisor. If I may, Thomas. my motion will be to, to hold this item here in committee. I don't think that it should come out of committee. That, that, is, that will be my motion. So by not come, just so I understand, I'm sorry. So, so by not coming out of committee, it means it will stay here until we can either present another facility or you get some, or we bring back evidence that shows that allay your concerns. That's correct. Then in that case, I would recommend that the entire committee come out to Edgewood and talk to most of our staff, not just to select, not just a handful, but to come and talk to all of our staff. So, so, I, so I plan can, to so come out. Get a, so you can get a good picture of what the overall uh, sentiment and the overall commitment to Edgewood is by our staff. So I, I definitely will come out as well to, to see the facility and, and talk to the staff. But I also wanted to say I appreciated the work with Edgewood for the San Francisco Unified School District over the years. And understanding the difference between a 5151 versus a 5150, I know, for SF General, and understanding the juvenile um, crisis stabilization unit differences with what adults go through at um, SF General or John George over in the East Bay, for example. So it'll be a good experience to, to view the site as well. Yes, because that, that's what we're uh, postponing at this time, the ability for young people to be able to come to a place that's, not, that's more suitable for children and families, because right now most of them will have to go to San Francisco General. Where but I'm also on the same page as Supervisor Campos of having serious concerns about the working conditions and the potential unfair labor practice charges that will be discussed in February. Okay. Yeah, appreciate that. Thank okay. you. Thank you. Supervisor Christensen? I just want to say that I'm concerned that what we have now are two, two maligned groups. So if, in fact, there are a majority of workers that have issues, they're now joined by families and children in crisis that have nowhere to turn. 
So I'm very concerned about a lack of urgency in this. Um, I think we're all aware of the fact that the healthcare industry is, is, presents challenges and that providing services in a nonprofit situation is even more challenging. I think you know our duty might be to level our concerns at those who fund this organization. If funding is an issue, then finding a way to fund the organization so that things are at a level that we require might be more appropriate. Um, and so for myself, I'd just like to see some sense of urgency here, some deadline by which this decision needs to be made. And if Edgewood needs to come back to us with further proof that either things aren't as bad as we think or that they've mended their ways, then I'd like some timetable for that so that you know, these families and children in crisis don't consider continue going to Contra Costa for treatment because I've seen the effects of that and, and it's not good for anybody. Thank you. So I guess that, that, that would be what, I mean, I'm not, sh I guess I'm not sure how we would do that. We don't have another facility that we can designate at this time. This was, um, this facility was, re was remodeled. It's already or, um, operating as a crisis stabilization unit. It's not a 5151 designated facility, but it is currently operating as a crisis stabilization unit. Why we're asking for the 5151 designation was so that we could receive children who are currently on holds because we, the way that the facility is designated right now, they can't accept a child on a hold. Um, those children still need to go to the emergency rooms and to psych emergency. So um, I'm not sure it's what our next steps would be. We don't have another facility that's in the pipeline to do this, and I'm not quite sure what it would take to allay the concerns of um, of the supervisors because my sense is is that. Um, like you mentioned, it is incredibly hard to run a nonprofit, especially in this county where the costs are so extreme. Um, that's not to say that your, you know, your concerns aren't legitimate. Um, I don't know if they're legitimate or not. I'm, you know, trying to set up a facility here. So I feel like we're a little bit stuck here. We'll go back. I'll speak with um, my supervisors, and I guess we'll I mean, I think there is an urgency, but I, like I said, I'm a little bit lost on next steps because we don't have another facility. So to Supervisor Cabos might have some suggestions. Thank you. Well, I think my suggestion would be, and you know, my motion when I make it would be to continue this item to the call of the chair, uh, so that we give the chair the flexibility to schedule, reschedule this item as quickly as possible. Uh, I actually think that at the end of the day, the concerns that 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 have been raised, uh, those are very serious concerns, mm -hmm. and I personally would not want a facility uh, to to welcome these children uh, unless those concerns are actually addressed. Those are concerns that Edgewood, it's within its power to address them, and so I am ready and willing to meet uh, at any time. Uh, and uh, so when I make the motion, the motion will be to continue it to the call of the chair so that the chair can schedule uh, the item back if, if need be. Uh, but I think that uh, it's totally within the purview and the power of Edgewood to, uh, to do the right thing here. And um, Ms. Les Badger, and I'm in agreement with both of my colleagues um, but especially the concerns raised by Supervisor Campos, but Supervisor Christensen raises the urgency of how we need to eliminate children and families from being re-traumatized in mm -hmm. adult settings mm -hmm. um, and all the other reasons why we need to move forward. So um, I'm going to support the motion by my colleague, Supervisor Campos, but work with you to bring this back as soon as possible, hopefully at the next meeting. But I plan to go out to Edgewood as well, but hope that the concerns of the, the workers and the community on the, um, the labor conditions are something that 
we do our best to resolve as well. So I'm going to support the motion by Supervisor Campos. Will there be specific concerns that will be outlined as a um, I think it would be helpful if we had specific concerns like low wages, um, like poor working conditions. I'm not sure what the specifics of the poor working conditions would be. Is it like that there's not enough staff on at one time? Um, it would be helpful if we had if I think if I can speak for Edgewood, if Edgewood had specific concerns that they could address because it seems kind of general at this point. I think, yeah, the, the list of concerns were expressed by the, the folks trying to form a union, so certainly we'll address those. Thank you, and, and I, I and think Supervisor Campos has been very explicit in the different concerns, and I, I could even share with you the letter that he sent and other documents if, if you need that. So, okay, so we need a motion on the floor. A public comment? Oh, yeah, we haven't opened up for public comment. So now let's open up for public comment. Is there anyone that would like to speak? Seeing none, public comment is closed. Supervisor Campos. Thank you. So I'd like to uh, make a motion to continue this item to the call of the chair. And I guess what I would say to the Department of Public Health, and I think that we have been very clear uh, ever since I've been on the board, that when an item like this comes before a committee, that if there are uh, uh, concerns uh, by workers at a facility that we're coming here and recommend uh, to get this kind of designation, uh, that we actually, that the department look into that before it mm -hmm. comes uh, mm -hmm. to the board and actually makes this request because those are questions that we're going to raise. Uh, there are specifics uh, that have been outlined and I'm happy to share those with you. Uh, but again, you know, uh, we understand the urgency and mm -hmm. it is because of these, this urgency that I think we need to get to the bottom of these issues as quickly as possible. Right. Well, so the, the Department of Public Health is aware that there was a, a vote on the union and, and that it did not pass. So, so in terms of their vetting of that or they're aware of their um, yeah. knowing that that occurred before this presented that that was known. And, and let me say this, that uh, uh, there are dozens and dozens of nonprofits who are struggling in San Francisco, but who still are able to manage to survive and to do so uh, and still treat their workers well. So it's not, uh, it's not like you have to choose between families and workers. It's a false choice. You can do both. And, uh, there are many organizations that prove that every day here in San Francisco. Thank you. So we have a motion on the floor. It's to continue the item to the call of the chair. Can we have a roll call vote, Mr. Evans? On the motion, Supervisor Campos? Aye. Campos, aye. Supervisor Christensen? Aye. Christensen, aye. And Chair Mar? Aye. We have three ayes, Mr. Chair. Thank you. So the item is continued to the call of the chair. And I'll do my best to bring it back as soon as I can, but hopefully there's some progress as stated in the committee. Uh, Mr. Evans, please call items four and five together. Um, Mr. Chair, items five and six. Oh, five and six together. Item number five is a hearing on the status of traffic calming programs on arteri arterial streets. And item number six is a hearing to find on the findings of the budget and legislative analyst report on speed limit reductions. Thank you. Colleagues, um, this hearing, I've called this hearing on the public health, safety, and environmental sustainability benefits of lowering speed limits in our city of San Francisco, along with other measures to make our streets safer. We have a number of speakers and department reps that are here to report on this. Um, this hearing is about also ultimately healthier, more livable streets and communities. Um, 
Our budget and legislative analyst report will highlight San Francisco's culture of um, speeding in our city, but also we know exactly which streets and where speeding occurs in our city with the highest incidence of accidents and injuries, according to our Department of Public Health and MTA. As San Francisco advances towards our Vision Zero goals, which are stronger policies and stronger funding to reduce traffic deaths to zero in the upcoming years, um, we need comprehensive solutions that will significantly alter this culture of speeding and culture of dangerous driving in our city. I think the BLA report confirms this culture, especially in key areas of our city. Today, we'll hear from the Budget and Legislative Analyst Office on how other cities are doing and how reducing speed limits can get us closer to zero traffic deaths or serious injuries. We also will discuss how enforcement and engineering and education interplay with speed limits to make streets safer. The status quo, according to the report from what I see from the data, clearly is not working. After dropping significantly in the 1990s um, and early 2000s, the rates of collisions have largely um, leveled off, or I would frame it as they haven't decreased as we wanted to over the past decade. And residents from my district, but from all districts in the city, I believe, fear for the health of their children, family, friends, and themselves when they're on certain key streets in our city. Um, that's not what a modern San Francisco or a global city like ours should be feeling like as people are on our streets. Over the past five years, I've had really good um, substantive conversations with our Department of Public Health staff, especially um, our former uh, Director of Environmental Health, uh, Dr. Rajiv Bhatia, but also other staff on a vision that looks at reducing speed limits as a way of um, improving the public health. And our Department of Public Health continues, along with the MTA, to lead on making our city safer, safer especially with our Vision Zero processes. But San Francisco, I fear, is falling behind New York, Portland, and other cities in America, according to our report, and internationally also in places like Bristol, London, and Paris that are taking more bolder and faster actions than we are doing in our city. Um, but the only silver or the silver lining that I think is coming out of this as the budget and legislative analysts, authors have shown are that we can really learn from these best practices from other cities and apply them to our unique conditions here in San Francisco. I'd like to acknowledge that with us today from the Budget and Legislative Analyst Office are Fred Brousseau, the Director of Policy Analysis, and Senior Analyst Catherine Angati, who did really great work on this report. From the MTA, we have our Director of Sustainable Streets, Mr. Tom McGuire, um, fairly recently from the Department of Transportation in New York, where we um, where he worked for years in improving um, safer streets in New York. Also, Ricardo Olia, a traffic engineer with our Sustainable Streets Division. From our Department of Public Health, um, we have Megan Weir, who's the director of our program on health, equity, and sustainability, and our co-chair of our San Francisco Vision Zero Task Force. From the police department, we have Commander Ann Mannix, who's really working hard on the Vision Zero processes in our city. We also have in the audience from our community-based organizations, Nicole Schneider, the executive director of Walk SF, Tyler Frisbee, the policy director from the San Francisco Bicycle Coalition, and many others. 
Um, with that, colleagues, I'd like to ask if you have any opening comments. Supervisor Christensen. Supervisor Campos. I just want to thank you, Mr. Chairman, and, and thank uh, Supervisor Yi, Supervisor Kim, so many who have done work on this. I uh, look forward to the presentations and the suggestions, and thank you to the budget analysts for their work as well. Thank you. And with that, I'd like to invite Fred Brousseau and Catherine Ngati to present on their findings. Good, after, good afternoon, Chair Marr, Supervisor Compost, and Supervisor Christensen. I'm Fred Brousseau from the Budget and Legislative Analyst Office. I'm just getting this prepared. And today I'm going to summarize the report we uh, completed at the request of Supervisor Marr on speed limit redu reduction options in San Francisco. Um, I'll start with a quick profile of collision statistics and speeding information in the city. Uh, first of all, just from 2011, the number of vehicle collisions was 3,111. Uh, of those, 844 involved pedestrians and 630 involved byclists. Of the um, the, another statistic is the number of collisions with fatalities, and you can see in 2011 it was 28. In the last three years, however, that number has gone up, uh, 42, 41, and 40, respectively. One-fifth of the collisions back to the 3,111 are due to speed, so that's about 622 collisions in 2011. And over 21% of the drivers in the city uh, exceed the speed limit by five miles per hour or more on approximately 88 streets. This map uh, shows where those streets are. And when I say over 21%, this was um, uh, some information compiled by the Department of Public Health, that ranges from 21% to 100. So we could have uh, significant numbers of drivers exceeding the speed limit on some So, Mr. Brusso, let me just ask you to repeat that. I think this is highlighting the culture of speeding and unsafe driving in our city. So there's at least 21% of the drivers are driving over the speed limit, and it's on over 88 streets that are identified by that map. Uh, that's correct, Chair Mar. And, yes, as you can see, they are scattered throughout the city. So. No neighborhood is immune. In terms of the collision history, and you made reference to this, uh, Chair Marr, in your opening remarks, there was a drop-off, and we can see it up through about 2004 in collisions, and then it has uh, stayed around 3,000 or so uh, for every year since 2000 and, uh, 2006. For collisions resulting in fatalities, a similar pattern. There was one spike year in 2007, but otherwise uh, the numbers are between 30 and 40, uh, around 30 and have been around 40 since 2011. We have newer information from the police department that I referenced earlier. 
And this is a six-year history shown on this map of collisions due to speeding. Again, uh, throughout the city, certainly a concentration in the northeast quadrant, and um, certain neighborhoods may have higher uh, rates than others, but you can see many of the main arterials uh, are affected here when you look at this map. In terms of current enforcement efforts in San Francisco, uh, the San Francisco Police Department Traffic Enforcement Unit is staffed with 41 officers, six sergeants, and two lieutenants. Uh, we have some statistics here on this table from the report that shows the number of citations issued by, the police, by this uh, traffic enforcement unit. And I should add, other officers will also issue citations for speeding or other traffic violations, so that is not their uh, primary function. So uh, zeroing in on the speeding citations, out of the 129,638 citations issued in 2014, uh, 7,454 were for speeding. And just on an average, that's about 20 citations a day. Can I ask a quick question? Supervisor uh, Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Mr. Russo, just a quick question. How does uh, this number, the number of citations for 2014 compare to 2013? Is there an increase? Uh, yes, I think we, I'm pretty sure we have that. And let me just check. Do we have that? No, maybe we don't. I think we just got the 2014 from the department. So. Um, I, we have uh, oh. Supervisor You can speak into the mic so that we can sorry. hear you. Thank you. Um, we have the, sorry, <laughs> the total. We don't have it broken down okay. for 2013. Um, but, oh, sorry, I lost the page here. That's okay. I mean, um, the reason the I asked. Total, the total was 129,000 in 2014, and then in 2013 it was 65,000. So that's good to know. We've seen a pretty significant, a significant increase, increase in enforcement. Yes, in Thank the, you. just in one year. And, but as Ms. Angadi said, we don't know how many of those were uh, specifically for speeding. Okay. Sure. <laughs> The, uh, excuse me, the next uh, slide is a map showing uh, high injury corridors for pedestrians, well not, uh, and this is uh, for the period 2007 through 2011, similar to uh, what was shown for the, um, the collision incidents. There's the same pattern there, though the numbers are fewer. Yeah, your skull and crossbones are, are pretty um, provocative there. We, we imported those, but I think they do tell the story. Um, switching to the topic of state law and what the city can do about uh, its speed limits and making changes to its speed limits, there's actually a limitation to city authority. Uh, the, the state and the California Vehicle Code in particular uh, establishes speed limit minimums and maximums and sets certain conditions uh, under which the city can make changes. So the minimum is 25, the maximum is 65. Um, then there is a what's called the prima facie uh, speed limits, and that's 25 miles per hour at, is the minimum in residential and commercial areas and uh, school zones, senior center zones. So the city cannot go below that with the one exception of uh, within 500 feet, 500 to 1,000 feet of a uh, school or a senior center. But the city on its own cannot otherwise reduce speed limits below 25 miles per hour. 
The city can make changes to uh, the speed limits, but it has to be based on an engineering and traffic survey. And that survey is uh, intended to determine what 85, the speed at which 85% of the drivers are driving, and then a change can be made to that. So uh, the concept is that the, most drivers are determining the, a, a rational, a reasonable uh, speed to drive on streets, and the speed limit should reflect that. So if you wanted to reduce a speed limit and most drivers are going at the current speed limit or higher, you could not do that under the current provisions of state law unless, because your engineering and traffic survey would not justify it. So can I just ask a quick question about that? So local adjustments, you need this engineering and traffic survey before considering reducing, but it can't be below 25 miles an hour in general. That's correct. So Sunset Boulevard, I think, recently had a reduction by five miles an hour, so they probably went through this process to... make that kind of change, they would have to go through this process. And then for safe routes to schools and the 15-mile-an-hour zones, that's within 500 to 1,000 feet of a school. But you're also saying that you could potentially do it near senior centers by creating a zone around a senior center as well. Right, within a limited radius of a senior center. And that's the exception to the 25-mile-an-hour prima facie minimum limit is if you have a school or a senior center, you can create a slower, a slow zone around those areas. Right. There is one other small exception just uh, to give you a detail, and that's blind alleyways, which can go down to 15 miles per hour, but that would not affect a, um, a large area. Okay. Thank you. Uh, as part of this report, you had asked us to uh, look at research done on the topic and the experience in other cities. Just a few highlights from some of the research, and this is done both by uh, U.S. academic institutions, federal government agencies, and government agencies in other countries. And a few of the key highlights from the research we reviewed, some of it may seem obvious, but these are actually based on rigorous studies. Uh, Vehicles traveling at higher speeds uh, result in an increased risk of collision. Collisions that occur occur at higher speeds result in more serious injuries or death. And one of the uh, very specific measures that helps uh, bring that to life is the distance needed to stop. At 30 miles per hour, it takes 109 feet on average for a vehicle to stop, but one going 20 feet only requires 62 feet to stop. And an, an interesting study that looked at the experience in a number of cities, this was actually done in the United Kingdom, but it found that even a one mile per hour increase or decrease in average speed could result in a, can result in a uh, 5% increase or decrease in collisions with injuries. And then uh, this table shows some of the uh, probabilities of impact based on vehicle speed and based uh, based on the age of the uh, pedestrian, if a pedestrian is struck. So you can see there's a dramatic increase in the column on the left there, impact, impact by speed of a pedestrian fatality as the speed limit goes up. So while it's only 5% at 20 miles per hour, it jumps to 45% at 30 miles per hour and up to 85% at 40 miles per hour. So it may not sound like a lot, but a 10 mile per hour difference in speed can have a significant impact. And then on the right, 
Uh, there's some statistics showing the probability of a fatality based on age, and there is a big jump, as you can see, in the probability as uh, the pedestrians age. And over 60, particularly, it gets um, to a very high percentage probability. In our, in our research looking at program speed limit reduction and speed reduction programs in other cities, both in the U.S. and abroad, we saw there were a few uh, models being uh, implemented that have been implemented. One is citywide speed limit reduction, so that's a, a program where all, uh, all streets in the city are reduced. They may not be reduced to the same amount, but they are reduced from what they currently are to a lower amount. And there are uh, 33 cities in the United Kingdom that have implemented that type of program. We also found a, uh, a large number of slow zone programs where a certain area of a city, a certain neighborhood, has a speed reduction, usually to 20 miles per hour for residential streets, sometimes 30 for uh, commercial streets or main streets or arterials. Examples are Dublin, Barcelona, Paris, and Zurich. Traffic calming measures in slow zones is another approach, and that is where uh, uh, speed bumps or uh, roundabouts or raised intersections, various uh, techniques are installed to slow down traffic, and uh, that's often done in a uh, designated area. And you can see here London, New York, Seattle, and Portland have programs like that. And I should add, San Francisco has programs like that. This table is... Uh, for cities elsewhere, but there is a uh, traffic calming program implement, implemented by the uh, MTA, and we'll talk about that a little bit later. Um, enhanced enforcement is another important part of speed reduction programs, and uh, particularly automated speed enforcement, which is currently not allowed in California. These are speed cameras, but uh, they are growing in number in other states and other cities in the country. Portland, Oregon has an extremely effective program that we looked at in detail, and there are at least 135 other jurisdictions in the U.S. outside of California that have implemented automated speed enforcement programs. And then you just said it requires state legislation to allow a local district to use automated speed cameras like red light cameras. Correct. Uh, actually, red light cameras are allowed in California, but uh, speed cameras are not. So. Uh, you can install, in fact, San Francisco has had red light cameras in the past, but uh, speed cameras currently cannot be installed. And then, finally, enhanced enforcement, the traditional approach, which is uh, police officers, uh, like the traffic enforcement unit does in San Francisco now, uh, patrolling streets and uh, pursuing speeders and issuing citations. And then a point at the bottom may seem obvious also that uh, many jurisdictions are combining these different approaches and uh, implementing speed reduction programs that have different uh, elements uh, in their efforts. We reviewed uh, speed reduction programs in six cities. We selected these because they uh, had a lot of information we could access, but more important, they had conducted some sort of evaluation of the results of their program. And these are shown on this table. Um, the cities were London, New York, uh, Bristol, England, Graz, Austria, Portsmouth, England, and Portland, Oregon. Of those, and, and this table highlights the approach they used. It's a combination of uh, slow zones, traffic calming devices, uh, speed limit reductions. For example, in Bristol, England, they simply lowered the speed limit 
but they didn't uh, increase enforcement or put in traffic calming devices. Other cities have lowered the speed limit but added enhanced enforcement or combined it with uh, traffic calming measures or slow zones. So there, again, these are the different approaches. Um, of all the cities we looked at, the London experience has been the most interesting because it's the most extensive. There are now 400 areas in Greater London that have uh, slow zones established with 20 mile per hour speed limits on the residential streets and um, no higher than 30 on uh, some of the main streets. In terms of results, they're shown here, again, because the London uh, efforts have been so extensive, they've also done the most exhaustive research. So uh, of the studies we looked at, that was probably the most interesting. It covered uh, 385 of the 400 zones. And uh, excuse me, I jumped over here. Here we go. Um, and found that they had an average reduction in speed in those zones of nine miles per hour. And going back to the, some of the formulas I mentioned earlier that may not sound significant, but it can have a dramatic impact on uh, fatalities, on injuries in accidents, and on the collision rate in general. And their average change in collisions over the 20-year period was a 40% reduction. And just a footnote on that, the, uh, the trend overall was a reduction in speed in collisions in the City of London during that same period. However, the rate in the slow zones was much higher, I think close to double in both cases, both for speed and number of collisions. So. There was a nice control by looking at the overall city versus the individual slow zones. New York was just one particular uh, area, the uh, Claremont neighborhood in the Bronx. They implemented a 20-mile-per-hour uh, 20 slow zone and lowered the speed limits there. It actually did not have an impact in the first two years of the program in terms of lowering the speed, though it didn't change. It stayed about the same as it had been before, which I hope indicates that people were driving at that lower speed anyway in the neighborhood mm -hmm. and had a reduction in collisions of 7%. Um, and then you can see the results on the others, Bristol, England, Graz, uh, Portsmouth, all had uh, reductions in average speed. Not dramatic numbers, but when you look at the average change in collisions, uh, they all went down in those cities as well. And just a, a note on that also, where you see the higher reductions in the average number of collisions, higher in Graz, Portsmouth, certainly higher in London. Bristol was the one city that did not have an enhanced enforcement program. It lowered the speed limit but did not enhance enforcement. And then finally, Portland, Oregon, where we don't have uh, statistics on the change in collisions, but they did have a dramatic impact by uh, implementing an automated speed enforcement program, a reduction in average speeds of uh, five miles per hour. The last slide Mr. Brousseau, do you know when Portland implemented their automated speed enforcement? I'm thinking it was around 2006, because I know the study was a, a five-year period. Is that correct? Or 1999, even earlier. Uh, so they should have some data. Yes, they okay. should. They probably do have some data on collisions. Unfortunately, it wasn't in the evaluation that uh, we were able to access. The um, just uh, two other things you had uh, requested in the study, uh, Chair Mar. One was on the environmental impacts, and another was on the economic impacts. Um, the numbers in terms of Studies have been done, mostly U.S. Department of Transportation studies, on the average costs of accidents 
They're uh, quite dramatic. 4.5 million is the average cost with fatalities involved, and that's counting the costs of lost wages and uh, medical costs and all related costs to the accident. So when a fatality is involved, that is the average established by the federal government. Uh, for an accident with injuries, it's approximately 280,000. And an accident with probable injuries, about 28,000. So you can see when you multiply it by the uh, number of collisions in San Francisco that there is a huge cost, both personal and uh, medical costs and so forth, that uh, are being experienced by the um, people involved in those collisions. Finally, oh, and on the environmental, the, uh, we did look at some studies on that. that was, the results were somewhat mixed. The main point, I guess, to make on that is that the, uh, the best impact in terms of uh, reductions in emissions occur when vehicles are driving at a moderate and consistent speed. When uh, these programs are implemented, sometimes they don't assist in that effort because uh, vehicles are slowing down to go over a speed bump. And if they accelerate, the more aggressive one accelerates afterwards, it actually uh, increases emissions. So there's a lot of variability in what the emissions impact can be, and it's, uh, we couldn't really give you a definitive statement of a trend one way or the other. It, it depends, I guess, is, is what I'd have to say. Finally, uh, we did provide some alternatives for the Board of Supervisors to consider, and we attempted to rank these by uh, impact on speed and uh, cost. And cost will really depend also on the extent of the program and uh, the number of elements that the program involves. So we, we measured these by what we're calling unit costs. So for example, for a traffic calming, the idea is one traffic calming zone. For increased enforcement with a police officer, we assume one additional police officer. Uh, and in that way, we could at least have some apples to apples type of comparisons of some rough estimates of costs. Uh, the alternatives are pretty much the types of programs we've talked about, um, enhancing existing enforcement through the traditional means, that is, increasing the efforts of the San Francisco Police Department and their traffic enforcement unit. And I should add, we got some information from them that's in the report indicating that with the current hiring plan underway uh, by the police department to get the number of officers up to the charter mandated number, there, the department does plan a 25% increase in its traffic enforcement unit. So that's, uh, the, I guess, the 41 officers they have now would be increased by 25% in the coming years as the staffing numbers uh, are increased for the department as a whole. The second alternative is advocating for change to state law to implement an automated uh, speed enforcement program. And um, as I mentioned earlier, that's currently not allowed in the state of California by state law. So uh, efforts would have to be initiated to make changes in the vehicle code. And if that occurs, then there are costs associated with one-time capital costs with uh, purchasing the equipment and uh, preparing the staff to, uh, to operate it. A third alternative is advocating for change to state law to allow the, spitty, uh, the city to make speed limit reductions that are not based on current uh, actual speeds. So there is this conundrum of 
you can only make changes based on the engineering studies, and that can only be based on what people are driving now, and most people, or a number of drivers, are exceeding the speed limit now. So uh, it doesn't really allow for moving the speed limits down if people aren't driving that, uh, that way currently. So that would require a change in state law, alternative three. Alternative four is advocating for uh, changes in state law along the same lines, uh, and then enhancing enforcement of the new speed limits, assuming that legislation is adopted and the city can lower its speed limits. Uh, that would in improve the effectiveness of a speed reduction program. There's a higher cost associated with it because there would be uh, uh, in, increase in enforcement costs, and there's the cost, the one-time cost associated with uh, amending the state legislation. Alternative five is to implement and enhance traffic calming treatments. Again, as I mentioned, that there is a program underway currently uh, with SFMTA, but uh, one possibility for the Board of Supervisors to consider is uh, enhancing that program, additional funding or uh, reallocating MTA resources so that the program is expanded. And finally, the sixth alternative is really the sort of the combination of all of the above. Uh, it would be advocating for changing changes in state law to allow the city more flexibility in uh, controlling its own speed limits, making changes to those speed limits, uh, enhancing enforcement either through uh, the traditional means or if uh, automated speed enforcement were allowed by state law by that means also and then uh, expanding and enhancing the current traffic calming efforts. So that is the summary of the report, and uh, Catherine and Gotti and I are here and be happy to answer any questions. Supervisor Christensen. Just have a question. Um, I certainly support Chairman Ma's interest in this topic, and I appreciate all the information. Um, don't want to put you on the spot. Had a couple of questions based on this. So pretty dramatic to see the change from 1990 continuing all the way to, to 2005. So we had 15 years of very steady reduction. Was there any indication in the data that you looked at whether we all just got to be better and more careful drivers over those years or whether there were measures on the part of the city that might have uh, caused those reductions? Right. Uh, Supervisor Christensen, there wasn't, uh, data, there wasn't information on that that we have reviewed, but I will add we've seen that same trend in other cities as well. So I'm just speculating here, but uh, every place has become more congested over the years, well, and that can be a good thing in terms of speed limits. Uh, frustrating for drivers, but... Uh, well, there, that, al there also were a lot of automotive changes in those years, too. We saw right. backup um, lights and improvements and things like that. The other question was um, whether the, the map that shows the corridors that are the primary problem areas where speeds tend to be high, Correct. is there anything that correlates those areas with current ongoing programs? So, for example, we have a number of programs in the city, MTA uh, programs for bicycles, transit. We've got a lot of um, intersection changes, bulb outs that are being made. Is there any overlay that shows what we're already doing to try to address those corridors? Right. Uh, no, we do not have that information. We don't have an overlay for the map. It's an excellent question. I'd like to see that also. Uh, you may be familiar with some programs um, and, and could, you know, eyeball it, but uh, we don't have a map to provide that information. It'd be nice to know what, because I'm sure probably we aren't the first people to be 
eyeing these corridors. Well, I, I find it interesting because I think probably the best changes are the intuitive ones, and I've, I've been delighted to see some of the things that the MTA has been doing in the city, uh, alleyways in Soma or you know, bicycle lanes, uh, crosswalks, things that they've been doing that intuitively mm -hmm. get people to slow down and to be more cautious, and I think that's great because despite the initial capital of, uh, expense, it tends to have a good result in the long run and sort of concurrently beautifies our streets, uh, makes the pedestrian experience better. So I'm glad to see that those numbers are good, but um, I look forward to seeing what Chairman Moore has in mind. Thank you. Supervisor Campos. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. And I, I do want to uh, also thank Supervisor Christensen for those questions. I think that uh, it would be useful to get the overlay in terms of what the programs are happening in different parts of the city. Uh, just a quick question, and I think this is really a very important topic. With respect to the alternatives, do you have a sense of whether or not any uh, city in California has tried to uh, make some of the changes or advocated for some of the changes to state law that are, that are referenced here? Uh, has there been any effort on the part of any other jurisdiction in California to pursue those those changes? I don't have information on that, Supervisor Compost. I do know that um, our own city is very interested in the automated speed enforcement efforts, and probably MTA staff could address that uh, better than I can, but I know there are staff people working on uh, potential changes to state legislation. I really I thought it was an excellent report. Just a final question about the London and the 24, I mean, the 20 mile per hour. Uh, uh, z zones, what was the speed limit prior, prior. To, to those zones being uh, put in place? Uh, Supervisor Compost, there wasn't a comprehensive list, but we know from looking at some of the areas that most, most of the residential were 25 and dropped to 20, and then some of the commercial and main streets were 30. Okay, prior. thank you. And I just wanted to thank both of you, um, Ms. Angotti and Mr. Brousseau, for the, the great report. I wanted to, to highlight that the speed limit compliance map that you gave is all over the city. And I know the MTA has identified the pedestrian high injury corridors and the, the map of the collisions due to speeding in the city, which tend to be concentrated in the northeast part of the city with South of Market and Supervisor Christensen's districts, but still there's a lot of injuries on the west side where there's a lot of red lines in the speed limit compliance in streets that you can drive uh, much longer distances like I'm just looking at this through Golden Gate Park. I see a lot of red lines right. and then key places near parks like McLaren Park um, and um, key long streets probably like Sunset Boulevard and a few others within the west side of the sunset. But but I think um, for a citywide approach, and I know our MTA is looking at approaches of calming traffic, hopefully limiting speed limits is a part of that strategy. And one other bit of information that you gave, besides the London, UK, the UK study showing that over the 20-year period, reducing traffic collisions by 40% in um, their efforts, I think that's really an important piece of data. But I think you said that that study found that by reducing speed limits by one mile per hour reduces the number of collisions by 
That's, yes, that's correct, uh, Chair Mario. It was, it was a separate study, but also out of the UK, and it, uh, it, it found that looking at a number of cities' experience, a uh, reduction of one mile per hour in average speed resulted in a reduction in 5% in average number of collisions. So it's, it's very dramatic. And we actually can see that it's not um, as precise as that when we looked at the case studies, but it was in that ballpark. So it was interesting to see some actual experience uh, su supporting that formula. And then to Supervisor Accomplice's question about potentially working with other California cities to look at state legislation, um, so our office is, gonna, is working with the MTA, but also our city attorney's office, and beginning communications with our um, legislative delegation for the state. Um, I also wanted to highlight one of the case studies by, for Portland, Oregon, on the automated cameras. It looks like what they use are vans, like a van that drives into your neighborhood um, for up to four hours, um, parked, that takes pictures every two seconds, and it's triggered when somebody's just going really fast, and, but it looks like an interesting um, use of new technology in school and work zones. So it's not throughout the city, and it's not there all the time, but it really could be targeted strategically to help um, people be more aware of the speed limits and in a targeted way. But it, could you just talk about automated um, enforcement cameras and just whether you think that's a realistic um, change that we could make at the state and possibly local level? Right. Uh, I think so, uh, certainly based on the Portland experience. And you point out the vans, it's a good point, because it, it's very mobile. It can go to where the problem spot is, and as can an officer on a motorcycle, for example. But um, it's a much more efficient approach in that for the same level of staffing, the camera can be taking pictures of every speeding vehicle as compared to uh, an officer, say, pulling over someone and issuing a citation and five cars are speeding by that the, the camera the, um, attached to the van would uh, pick up photographs of all of those vehicles. So there is a big jump in the productivity or efficiency using the technology. In, in um, I think it's like any technology. I'm sure there's... Uh, you know, some weaknesses to it, or there can be disputes. This certainly happened with the red light cameras where some people challenge the results of it. But um, assuming the technology is solid, it is a very effective means of catching a lot of speeders, more so than an individual officer could do at one time. I'll note, too, we do use um, those mobile your speed is signs yes. in San Francisco. There's been one on Harrison between 6th and 7th. Uh, they've right. been using them at the airport, too, I noticed. That's right, and I think those have some effect. If they're not coupled with actual enforcement actions, that is, if people aren't getting stopped and know it's just a sign, the effectiveness may be limited. But um, I think of all these things, looking at you know combinations of them is where we see the, uh, the greatest effectiveness coming through. And, and on that note where you know, we tried to indicate costs, the highest cost is associated with the biggest combination, and we believe that would be the most effective in terms of reducing speed. But uh, one note on that is any program like this can be implemented in many different ways. It could be phased in. It could be certain neighborhoods. It could be certain, ter uh, certain zones, um, one camera versus ten cameras. So to the extent cost is a consideration or concern, there's certainly ways of 
uh, spreading it out over time. It doesn't have to be a citywide program with all these things implemented at, um, at one time everywhere. Supervisor Campos. Just a quick, uh, Thank you. Just, just a question on that, sir. A uh, city like London, uh, do you know if they faced in sort of the their program? You know, did they start with you know a pilot and then they expanded it? You know, do you have a sense of how right. how that worked and uh, very serious? I know it's been expanded over the years, and there's a process not unlike what MTA does here, where um, neighborhoods uh, can apply for funding and have to have a certain number of neighbors agreeing. So it's definitely uh, increased over the years, and whether it started with a you know, one pilot or two, I'm not sure. We could look into that and, um, and get that information to you. Thank you. Michelle, I was going to say that um, from some of the information from the BLA report, it looks like there was California state legislation on automated tra traffic enforcement systems um, introduced by um, Semidian um, in 2012, vetoed um, by the governor. Then in 2013, another one um, by Semidian that was enacted. So I think we have to look at what that one allows, that, um, the, but the different legislation that's occurred in the past and why um, they were defeated at times. Um, I also wanted to say that there's data from not just Oregon in Portland, but also the state of Washington from 2005. Looks like Oregon had theirs from 1995 on automated Enforcement and the, Wash the um, Washington D.C. is that it? Yeah, that the region had it in 2001. So it looks like there's other regions where we could draw from too. And um, Chair Mar, I believe New York City has recently obtained permission from their state legislature to implement an automated speed enforcement program. I think that's fairly recent. Thank you so much for the great report. Now I'm going to ask if Megan Weir from our Department of Public Health and the co-chair of our Vision Zero um, committee can speak to be followed by um, Tom McGuire and, and Ricardo Olia from our Sustainable Streets Division. Thank you so much, supervisors, for the opportunity to speak today on this important issue. Um, my name is Megan Weir, and I'm the director of the Program on Health Equity and Sustainability at the San Francisco Department of Public Health, and also co-chair the Vision Zero Task Force. In this role, speed is really of the utmost concern with respect to the health of San Franciscans and all the people who walk, cycle, take transit, and drive on our streets due to the really clear association between increases in vehicle speed and increased risk of severe injury and death, which is really clearly demonstrated in uh, this report. SFDPH includes our San Francisco General Hospital and Trauma Center, where our trauma surgeons and medical professionals experience daily and firsthand the tragic impacts on our residents and their families when people are injured on our streets. Approximately a quarter of patients seen each day in our trauma center have been injured as pedestrians in vehicle collisions. As you know, Vision Zero with the goal of eliminating traffic deaths by 2024 is our city policy, and we are looking to international best practices with respect to creating the safest transportation system for all the people who use it. And Vision Zero has an ambitious target and we need speed management tools in our toolkit to reach this goal. I am really inspired by this report and the work of our elected officials, the SFMTA and the police department to address this issue. 
core to Vision Zero in Sweden, where it originated and elsewhere, is that people make mistakes and that there's a critical limit beyond which survival and recovery in an injury are not possible. And an important goal is therefore to manage speeds on our streets so that this critical limit is not exceeded and people can survive. And this means ensuring that speeds on our streets protect people. Through our work on Vision Zero, we've identified what we are calling our Vision Zero High Injury Network. Um, I brought uh, some copies of it today. I don't know. Um, which really expands our pedestrian and cyclist network to all modes. Uh, that network accounts for 12% of our city streets, uh, so 125 miles, where over 70% of people who are severely injured or killed uh, are, are killed on that network. And this is where the SFMTA and other agencies are now targeting uh, safety improvements for Vision Zero. What I also wanted to highlight today the correlation between that high injury network and our Metropolitan Transportation Commission's communities of concern, where we have high, relatively higher concentrations of low income residents, communities of color, senior peoples with disability, and other populations that rely on walking and transit. And so these communities account for 30% of the streets in San Francisco, and our over 50% of our high injury network is represented in these communities. So through this work, we're really addressing equity issues in San Francisco as well. The report cites that approximately 20% of injury collisions in San Francisco have unsafe speed as the primary cause. And this is really profound with respect to understanding the role of speed. But it's really also important to note that the report overall provides strong evidence that any increase in vehicle speed is associated with increased risk of injury and death. And that's regardless of whether or not it's cited as a primary factor in a collision. As driving speeds increase, peripheral, peripheral vision decreases and the distance it takes to come to a full stop increases across all speeds and regardless of the current speed limit. Conversely, decreases in vehicle speeds in our streets, even small ones, as was just discussed, can contribute to significant reductions in injury and death. Vehicle speeds fundamentally impact on injury severity, which makes this issue so important for achieving vision zero. And this is true for speeds both on and off the high injury network. We also know that San Francisco's population is aging, and with recent conservative estimates of at least 15,000 more seniors in San Francisco by 2020, and by 2030, over half um, of the population is projected to be over the age of 45. San Francisco is proud to be nationally recognized for walking and biking with the goal of increasing those types of active transportation and creating a healthy city where people can live, work, play, and even age in place. The report makes the importance of addressing speeds to create safe streets for all residents, including seniors, of vital importance given the significant disproportionate risk of severe injuries and deaths that seniors face as speeds increase. While the report articulates the cost of each alternative policy scenario, it also summarizes the substantial cost of preventable transportation-related injuries in the streets of San Francisco. These costs are significant regardless of the estimation approach, and notably costs for pedestrian and cyclist collisions tend to be higher overall given their increased vulnerability when hit by a car. Uh, I wanted to end with an anecdote. I was recently at a presentation at the National Transportation Research Board's annual meeting in D.C. on pedestrian safety in Poland, which has adopted Vision Zero. 
and uh, a chart was shared on the trend of decreasing pedestrian injuries in the country. And it showed a clear downward trend over a number of years with a, an anomalous bump up. And an audience member asked um, if the presenter knew what, ha what happened that year. And he replied that that was the year the country suspended automated safety enforcement. Uh, though through Vision Zero, we're committed to achieving the same downward trend in San Francisco and appreciate the role of speed um, brought by this report. Thank you. Thank you. I just wanted to thank um, you and your staff and, um, and one of the former staff, um, Dr. Rajiv Bhatia, for bringing this idea. That's like over five years ago as a, one of the tools that could be used. But I'm glad that we have this report and a tremendous Vision Zero process that you're leading as well. Thank you. Colleagues, any questions? Um, thank you so much. Thank you. Megan Weir from the Department of Public Health. Now, I forgot to mention that we have another presentation before getting to the MTA staff. Um, it's Commander Ann Mannix from the Police Department to see if she has any um, comments about um, enforcement since it was brought up over and over again by the Budget and Legislative Analyst Report. And thank you also to the Police Department for being a strong Vision Zero and early Vision Zero adopter as well. Great. Well, I'm two weeks into my new position, so I did provide the data that I could. And I think you had a question about 2013 data. Our, our data collection methods weren't really accurate before April of 2013, so the numbers are a little bit off. I, uh, again, I'm two weeks into this new position, and I'm, I'm very excited uh, to work with all the advocates. I've met a few in the audience already, uh, working with the MTA towards the goal of uh, Vision Zero by 2024. Uh, um, we're here today, uh, Captain Tim Ozier and I, to answer any questions you have and specifically related to enforcement. Um, other than that, uh, again, uh, I'm new to the position and uh, I don't know what else I can offer today. But I'm looking forward to working with everyone. Yeah, thank you and um, thank you for taking on the, the task that um, Commander Ali has been working on for years, but I look, for, look forward to working with you. I know one um, part of the report mentions that the police department is planning to increase the number of officers in the, tra uh, the traffic enforcement unit by 25%, and I'm just wondering, that's over two years, I believe. Is that um, a part of the broader strategy with Vision Zero? Uh, well. Uh, as you know, we are low in staffing, and we're in the third year of a six-year hiring um, program, if you want to call it that. We're hiring approximately 150 each year. And uh, the goal is to staff the stations first, and the special operations uh, are always second. So uh, as we staff up the stations, we'll be able to staff up uh, tr the traffic company, uh, the immunity division, um, also the uh, tactical company as well. Again, all the special operations, uh, which are supplementary, supplementary police resources, uh, take a backseat to patrol uh, the this, this station level. So we will be committing more resources, absolutely. And I know from um, Captain Simon Silverman in the Richmond District Station that we've seen a tremendous increase in um, especially traffic enforcement in our district. But I know each district is different and different priorities, but, but I'll have to say it's been a pleasure to work with him as we try to um, create safer conditions on the streets, but I know that that's probably a district-by-district district decision on how much to focus on um, traffic calming enforcement. Well, uh, as a city, uh, as a department, we are focusing on the five, the top five primary collision factors, which I think you enumerated already. Uh, and 
some districts are more spread out like yours, and it lends itself well to um, different citation sections. So we're not, we're, again, we're focusing on the five. Are, are we getting them in every district at that number? Not yet. Okay, very good. Any other questions, colleagues? No, but thank you so much, Commander Mannix. My pleasure. Um, so now we have um, a, a joint part of this hearing is our representatives from the MTA to discuss traffic calming, but, but also on arterial streets that accompany um, speed limit uh, discussions. And I wanted to reintroduce um, our head of sustainable streets, um, Mr. Tom McGuire, but also um, um, our, one of our senior traffic engineers for sustainable streets, Ricardo Olia, as well. Mr. McGuire. Okay, thank you, Supervisors, and thanks, thanks for the opportunity to come here and talk about the importance of uh, controlling speeds as a way of achieving the safety goals we have here in San Francisco. Uh, I'm Tom McGuire. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, I oversee the Sustainable Streets Division at the MTA, where we oversee all parking and traffic on the streets of San Francisco. And uh, perhaps the most important part of our mission is the achievement of Vision Zero. I'm really excited uh, to see the Board of Supervisors following through on its historic commitment to Vision Zero, um, which is something that we at the SFMDA, of course, share. Uh, and I, I thought your comment, Supervisor Marr, about uh, that there's a culture of speeding on the streets uh, was, was prescient. And I think what, what we'd like to do is use initiatives like Vision Zero and these kind of conversations to replace that culture of speeding with a with culture of safety. Um, also, uh, I want to thank the, the, the BLA for their, their research, and I took, a few, um, I took a few key takeaways from that. The first was, of course, that speed really does matter. It matters for, uh, it matters for um, reducing the severity of crashes, and it matters for uh, changing, that, changing that culture to a culture of safety on the streets. Uh, I thought it was really important to have reinforced the importance of combining enforcement, education, and engineering together, which is the Vision Zero approach, of course, uh, but combining those three E's together um, to achieve to achieve a, a, a maximal safety outcome, uh, and then of course the importance of automated safety enforcement, uh, and and that that is a tool that maybe as we as we embark on a conversation about what the what the right speed limit is here in San Francisco, uh, we should think about how automated safety enforcement might be a uh, a first win legislatively and something that that we can work uh, with our colleagues in the Board of Supervisors to advance in Sacramento. So why does speed matter? Speed matters because it's the most important causal factor in uh, fatal and injury crashes in San Francisco. And that is consistent, consistently found in the research we saw presented earlier today. It's, uh, it was found in the research that uh, my colleagues and that Megan uh, have, have been working on for years uh, through Vision Zero. It's why the SFPD, as Commander Mannix said, is focusing on the five. And it's why uh, many of the efforts that we undertake to re-engineer the streets within SFMTA are focused on reducing those dangerous high speeds on the high-speed, high-crash locations. How do speed limits fit into, into that picture? Uh, the speed limit is a tool. It's not the only way to control speed, but it's an important tool uh, that, that, that helps pair with an engineering education and enforcement to, um, to, to affect driver's behavior. Uh, we have a, in addition to the broad Vision Zero uh, policy approach we're taking. We have a number of specific programs within SFMTA, which our city traffic engineer, Ricardo Olea, is going to talk about. Um, we have a request-driven, constituent-driven neighborhood traffic calming problem uh, program, and we have a, 
we have a small a, a program that we, we are launching, which is similar to the ones that were described in New York City and in the UK about creating uh, neighborhood slow zones, or what we call home zones, uh, where we take uh, residential uh, residential areas with um, lo low traffic volume but speeding problems and re-engineer the streets to um, so that the speeds are appropriate for residential neighborhoods. Changing the speed limit in California in any way uh, is a complicated process. Speed limit is, is embedded in uh, several parts of the California Vehicle Code, so um, we need to be mindful of the of the kind of overlapping overlapping legal issues um, that that would result from from look, looking to lower the speed limit. Um, we also need to consider that there is a policy context uh, at the statewide level. Not every city is, has, has made the commitment that San Francisco has made, and uh, there are certainly um, there are legislators who have different views on, on the matter. Uh, speed limits touch on not just the traffic safety issues, but they also get into issues of equity, um, uh, the, the effectiveness of our communication about how we expect uh, drivers to behave on the streets to the public, and, 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 and those are important those are important issues that we need to engage. It uh, doesn't mean we shouldn't try to lower the speed limit, but I think we should just be um, be realistic about what 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 a challenge it will be. Um, the, we also know that the, the Senate Trans Transportation Committee, uh, I, I believe, they currently have a policy that they are not they're not interested in considering uh, measures to lower speed limits without engineering traffic studies. So. Um, None of those are constraints that can't be overcome, but I think they uh, they will require uh, they will require the city and county to lead uh, to, to to maybe lead the state on this issue. Um, it's going to require us likely to work with our colleagues both on the legis legislative side and within the administration in Sacramento to uh, make make everyone aware of again the importance why speed matters so much in preventing fatalities and injuries on in our streets, and why it's really important that. Uh, local governments in places like San Francisco that have taken on big challenges like Vision Zero uh, get the tools we need to to, uh, to get that job done. There are a couple of different options that I think we want to think about as we as we start to uh, talk about what what good speed limit policy is. Uh, the first, of course, as uh, the, uh, as was described before, there's the prima facie speed limit, which is the default background speed limit for the entire city. One option would be simply allow cities to lower those speed limits. Another option would be to uh, allow a targeted lowering of those speed limits in areas where traffic calming devices, uh, home zones, and other kinds of programs like that uh, have been introduced. And that might be a particularly uh, appropriate approach in places like the Tenderloin and South of Market where we have um, a densely concentrated and severe, uh, severe crash problem. And then, of course, all of these uh, make great partners for automated safety enforcement. Which is uh, which is a legislative challenge that we're taking on taking on this year, and um, there's there's been some great research both by BLA but also by the by the controller's office about the effectiveness of automated safety enforcement at reinforcing the posted speed limits, um, and in particular at saving lives in places near schools and, and senior centers. Uh, currently, there's 136 jurisdictions in the country that have automated safety enforcement, uh, and we certainly look forward to. Um, to uh, to uh, to a time when, a time when San Francisco can be the hundred. So, Mr. McGuire, you said 136 different cities, uh, cities and municipalities. Yes. Okay. Um, so, all those comments are just just to say that uh, again, speed matters. We know that speed is 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 probably the most important 
driving behavior that we need to get under control if we're going to achieve Vision Zero, but that it needs to be, but that needs to be pursued in both the, the realistic policy context uh, at the state level, and that it also needs to continue to be paired with the education and enforcement efforts that we're working with our partner agencies and with, with everyone in the city family to, uh, to move forward. Um, so before I turn it over to uh, to Ricardo, who will actually address a number of Supervisor Christensen's questions about what are some specific things that MTA is doing uh, on those high crash, high speed corridors. Uh, I would just, I would just uh, maybe put in a plug and, and hope that you'll, you'll, uh, you'll, you'll find a way to uh, to help us make that case in Sacramento about automated safety enforcement this year, and then to begin to lay the groundwork for some changes to the speed limit over the course of the session. Thank you. Good afternoon, Supervisors. Ricardo Leam, the City Traffic Engineer with the SFMTA. Uh, I'd like to commend, uh, again, the Budget and Legislative Analyst uh, Office for their report. Uh, they made a com very complicated the subject, very um, uh, understandable, and I think uh, it's recommendable to their staff that they did that. It, this, this is an area that is controversial. It has a lot of technical complexity, and I think uh, uh, the Board putting attention on this, I think, will help us, decision makers, as well as the public, to understand um, the challenges that we face and some of the solutions uh, going forward. I'm going to talk about specifically about arterial uh, traffic calming. And in speaking about arterials, I'm using the traditional definition that's in our transportation um, plan, which is that these are the cross-town cross through streets that are used to connect neighborhoods and the city with the regional uh, transportation network. Uh, San Francisco doesn't have a lot of uh, through freeways, so a lot of the local traffic is mixed with the through traffic on these arterials. These are streets that can carry between 10,000 to 50,000 vehicles a day. So they're uh, pretty important streets uh, in terms of volume and also in terms of the, the role they play in the, in the system. Uh, they, arterials in San Francisco unfortunately have the, the, um, the characteristic that they're traveling often through very dense commercial areas, very dense residential areas. Uh, there's not this sort of segregation that you see in some cities where an arterial will be this sort of major street that doesn't have any fronting businesses or any fronting uh, residences. Some of our arterial streets are going right through schools and then through a hospital and then through a park, and they have driveways and on-street parking and uncontrolled crosswalks, um, a lot of activity. So we have to just be conscious of that, that arterials in San Francisco vary, vary widely from being um, small streets to being very wide streets, from being streets that have uh, dense commercial activity to being streets that are kind of more um, in out-of-the-way areas. Uh, we all agree that the movement of these thousands of vehicles a day have to be done in a safe manner. So the question is how do we achieve that? And we have to also be conscious of the specific role that arterials play. We don't want to do things to arterials that necessarily will encourage people to use other streets. So if we affect arterial traffic, there could be a potential for people to use other local streets to detour through neighborhoods. And that's where neighborhood traffic calming comes into play in, in the sense of ensuring that um, local, uh, more residential streets are not being used as cut-through streets, uh, which are con concerns that you hear about all the time. And speeding can also vary depending on the time of day. So even if we're talking about streets being congested during the day, there may be times of the day where these arterials are relatively emptier, and that's also when you could have um, uh, speeding. So the size of an arterial may be 
accommodating peak hour traffic, but during off-peak times, the arterial uh, may be emptier, and that's a situation where you may have speeding at night, or on weekends, or during the middle of the day. Uh, as, uh, as Megan and others have talked about, the, the city now has a, a, a map where we've concentrated the, the highest injury network streets uh, for all modes. And if you look at this map and compare it with the arterial map, you'll see a, a big overlap. And that's, that's a function of the fact that it's more likely for people to get into collisions on these major streets just by the fact that they're carrying so much traffic and they're also intermingling in major areas with a lot of pedestrian and uh, bicycle activities. So uh, there is an, a large overlap between the, the pedestrian, bicycle, and overall injury maps and the arterial uh, network in the city. Again, we've spoken about how unsafe speed constitutes about a fifth to a fourth of collisions just by itself. Uh, but I would like to emphasize uh, again that if you're speeding, you're more likely to run a red light. If you're speeding, you're more likely to be unable to yield to a pedestrian. If you're speeding, you're more unlikely to lose control of your vehicle in a situation where somebody else is trying to turn, um, and so forth. So speeding is not just by itself a, a, you know, a fourth of collisions. It's also probably behind as a secondary factor or even a, a third factor behind most collisions. When you're going slower, you can react to things that are unanticipated in a much better fashion. And again, as we've said, there's also the fact that all these collisions can be non-injury or they can be fatal. And when you're going fast, it's more likely that the red light running, the failure to yield to pedestrians, and the speeding, traffic, uh, speeding collisions themselves will result in injuries as those speeds go up. Uh, so speeding, as I think, is the, key, the critical factor in causing collisions and also in the severity of the collisions. So how do we approach arterial traffic calming? Uh, we basically want streets not to have the characteristics that will make speeding um, attractive. So we want to have appropriate spacing of traffic controls if possible. So that means primarily traffic signals or other type of uh, devices to make sure that vehicles um, are controlled in that way. Uh, we want to make sure that streets have appropriate number of traffic lanes and that those traffic lanes are, are as narrow as possible. There's a lot of research indicating that narrow traffic lanes uh, can be one tool to help uh, slow down uh, traffic. And we also want to design streets to be attractive to all modes. Uh, if we design a street that's attractive to pedestrian and bicycle traffic, those are typically going to be streets that are designed for slower speeds and are going to be safer to motorists as well. Uh, this is a picture of San Jose Avenue south of I-280, which uh, when I, when, um, before the, the road died was a six-lane street that had absolutely no attractiveness whatsoever to any other mode other than just going through it. As you can see, uh, there was not even any medians. Uh, fortunately, the, the state uh, of uh, Caltrans department went in there and did a road diet. So now this street that formerly had six lanes uninterrupted now has four. So th these are the kind of situations where you have very low traffic volumes, you have six lanes of traffic, uh, speeding is going to be inevitable, there's no traffic controls to stop you. Um, those are the kind of situations we're trying to address gradually through our uh, Vision Zero program and our just our What street is that, Mr. Olea? San Jose Avenue, south of I-280. Uh, in terms of traffic control devices, I just wanted to mention the, the example of Geary Boulevard. Um, which uh, is a major six-lane arteri uh, six ar arterial uh, in a commercial core area between 25th Avenue and Masonic Avenue. It's, it's a high commercial area. And this is one of these examples of a, of a street that has a lot of pedestrian activity, a lot of transit activity, and as well serves a major function in carrying uh, traffic uh, through the area back and forth east-west. Um, and what we've 
done over time uh, using uh, transportation sales tax funds is to signalize all the uncontrolled crossings so that not only are there more controls to control the traffic speeds, but the uh, likelihood of pedestrians or motorists being hit at these uncontrolled crossings decreases. So if you can see from this map, uh, when I started working for the city about 20 years ago, there were a number of intersections along Geary that weren't signalized, such as Third Avenue. Mm -hmm. And people would get into collisions at those locations that would have a hard time crossing. And so as we've been able to invest in our, in our infrastructure, we've been able to fix those issues. And now we're in the process of signalizing uh, one of the last two um, locations at uh, 26th and 22nd Avenue. Um, at the same time, if you look at the same corridor down further south, the Fulton Corridor, you'll see that there's a much less spacing of traffic signals. Again, that corridor is not as um, commercial, uh, but it does have a lot of residential activity, and that's an area where we probably need to go in there and do more traffic controls, and part of the plan for our Vision Zero sig new signals funding is to install additional traffic signals on Fulton. Sunset Boulevard is another example of a corridor um, where it used to be that there was uh, a traffic signal every other block. And what would happen is that uh, over time we had pedestrian and vehicular collisions at the intersections along Sunset Boulevard that did not have a traffic signal. And so, again, using primarily uh, safety funding, transportation sales tax, and other types of funds, we were able to uh, signalize at this point uh, most of the intersections that weren't signalized and are now in the process of signalizing uh, the last two, Wawona and Moraga. And in doing so, this as well, by changing the characteristics of the street, we were also able to do a speed limit reduction uh, from 35 miles per hour to 30 miles per hour. Can I ask you about that speed limit reduction? Are there other arterials that you're considering reducing the speed limit, like Sunset Boulevard? Uh, what we do when we look at speed limits is we do a study based on kind of a, a regular basis. Uh, the law requires a study at least seven years uh, or more if the street has not changed. We are in the process of going and revising all our, our speed measurements, so we'll be using uh, the methodology that's been described in the budget analyst report uh, where we use the 85th percentile as kind of the, the kind of anchor, but then we are allowed by California law to round down and then round down five miles per hour if there are spe specific circumstances such as uh, pedestrian, bicycle safety, or residential density. So we are in the process of looking at that, but at this point I don't have like the name of the streets that, 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 are, that are in consideration for lower speed limits. And then the effort to reduce the speed limit and to create a safer Sunset Boulevard, that started out over seven years ago then, and then the data gathered seven years ago? No, the, we reached the point at which we had installed so many traffic signals that the characteristics of the street changed, so we had to retime the traffic signals. And in doing all those changes, we basically were able to confirm that the 85th percentile had decreased, and we were able to take um, that data to then lower the speed limit. So it was a combination of changing the street um, to be a different type of street, and then that, required a, that allowed us, through the data, to lower the speed limit. And it was, just, it was just basically a gradual process of, of signalization in that case and then retiming of traffic signals to allow us to do that. So you look at seven years of – what's the state requirement? So you're looking at seven years of no, data? No, sorry to clarify. Every, every seven years at least you must do a study. Okay. Uh, but the data is gathered on one, uh, at one point in time. 
So the, it's, a, it's a study that is done at one point in time, uh, but it has to be done in a certain uh, sequence, not, not to exceed seven years. Okay. Uh, the, other, the other aspect about the number of lanes on, on streets, San Francisco has over time adopted a number of what's called road diets. Um, these are primarily safety projects where uh, we look at the number of traffic lanes and in some instances uh, uh, can remove a traffic lane and add either bicycle lanes, turn lanes, or other kind of improvements such as even wider sidewalks. And this is a map of areas in the city where we've done road diets. Uh, we've done over 60 over time. Uh, this is the, the latest and one of the most exciting ones is the road diet we did on Cesar Chavez, uh, which was in the, in the mission, a very uh, high-trafficked street, but also a very residential street with six lanes of traffic assigned at 25 miles per hour, but often with vehicles not traveling at that speed. Uh, through partnerships with the Department of Public Works and the PUC, we were able to go in there and uh, do a major redesign of the street uh, with sidewalk widening, new median, uh, 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 landscaping, uh, bicycle lanes, uh, lighting, and we were able to then also take down the number of lanes from six to four. And that project is uh, uh, being evaluated now to see all, it, all, all of its um, impacts on the, on the system. Uh, Fulton Street, the uh, street near where I live, uh, was taken uh, near the University of San Francisco from a four-lane arterial in an area where there's a lot of students and uh, residents and was made into a street where um, uh, one of the lanes was uh, removed and then one of the other lanes was turned into a turn lane, which allows for increased pedestrian safety uh, crossing the street. In terms of posted speed limits, uh, we've seen a gradual over time decrease in the number of streets that have speed limits over 25 miles per hour. Most of the streets in San Francisco have that speed limit. Um, there are still a lot of major uh, arterials that have speeds above that, and this is a summary of those. They tend to be the streets that are more uh, uh, heavy traffic, more multiple lanes. Uh, and we've been in the process of evaluating uh, speed limits using California law to see where uh, there can be adjustments either due to changes in conditions or changes in, uh, in regulatory environment. And this is a summary of uh, speed limits that we've changed. Most recently, we've uh, considered or, and adopted changes for speed limits on Monterey Boulevard, on Sunset, as we just described, and Fulton Street is the latest, which is uh, pending uh, implementation that uh, the outer portion of Fulton will have its speed reduced from 35 to 30. Of course, uh, this is just one tool uh, which depends on enforcement and also um, other, other measures to make sure that uh, vehicles do travel at those speeds. So in all those cases, we're also looking at doing other things uh, we don't just want to change a speed limit sign and, and think that that will solve all our issues. We're also looking at making other changes to particularly the high collision locations. Signal timing comes up as, a, as, a, as another tool where you can take the traffic signals, particularly in those situations where you have um, a dense spacing of traffic signals, such as in the downtown area, and you can sometimes coordinate them to, to lower speeds. Uh, we've done, uh, for example, on Valencia Street, we have uh, the signals time for bicycle travel. So if you're going at 15, 14 miles per hour, you get the, a sequence of signals. If you decide to go faster than that as a vehicle, what would happen is you'll, you'll just arrive at a red light. Um, it's unfortunately not possible to do that all the time. Um, I wish it were possible to just use traffic signals to make everyone travel at a sort of moderate speed. But because of uh, the way that many streets crisscross, because of two-way uh, flows 
and because of different uh, traffic volumes on different streets and different needs by different modes, such as pedestrians needing to cross major streets, transit needs, it's not always possible to have that perfect 25 mile per hour or even slower speed progression, but it is a tool that we're looking at and we are now in the process of reevaluating um, uh, specific streets for lower progression of traffic signals. And also we have um, funding that we're seeking to retime all of our downtown streets, so South of Market, uh, Tenderloin, Western Edition. Uh, we're looking to see how those streets can be adjusted for uh, speed control. Other engineering measures specifically on arterials about speed. So I've talked about speed limit signs. Sometimes you can um, make sure that you have more signs to remind motorists of the speed limits. Uh, sometimes you can pair those with feedback signs, which we've talked about before. So that's kind of a mechanism that reminds the motorist or tells the motorist that you're going too fast. Um, you can have narrower traffic lanes. You can have uh, medians or pedestrian medians that will take those narrower traffic lanes and allow pedestrians to cross uh, streets in a safer manner. You can do curb extensions. Uh, those are tactical sidewalk widenings at corners that kind of narrow down the street. Some of those can be uh, paired with sidewalk widenings on the most kind of aggressive or more expensive street re redesigns. On-street parking is something that uh, adds friction to a street, so it adds urba urbanity and sometimes can be used as a way to ensure that vehicles don't travel too fast. And always landscaping, trees, anything to make the street uh, feel less like a, uh, as some people criticize in traffic sewers, if, if, if things can be done to streets to make them more attractive, uh, not only are they attractive to the people that live, that live on these kind of major um, high traffic streets with a lot of noise, but it's also attractive to the people that use them, uh, pedestrians, bicyclists, motorists, uh, transit riders. There are limitations to engineering, and we've discussed this, that um, regardless of how some streets can be redesigned, um, vehicles can still will can still travel at high speeds. Um, it's not physically possible to always prevent those high speeds. And uh, some arterial redesigns can be expensive, particularly when you're dealing with ambitious major redesigns. You're talking about millions of dollars per block, potentially, uh, when you're talking about sidewalk widenings, uh, changing drainage, adding landscaping, changing lighting. So those can be major investments. They're worthwhile investments, and the city is in the process of doing a lot of those. Masonic Avenue, uh, Cesar Chavez. Um, but, uh, you know, we need, we need to be conscious of the fact that, that we have a citywide problem and that, that, that is a very capital-intensive approach. So we need to have, at, at the same time, enforcement mechanisms that can take care of all these other streets uh, where perhaps redesigns are not planned or feasible or going to be as effective, and this includes... Uh, staffing police department at a sufficient level to have officers on the streets and also potentially new technologies such as automated speed enforcement, which have been discussed before. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Alia. Um, really great presentation and explanations on the engineering challenges, um, but I really appreciated the, um, the, the graphics and the maps that show us the different um, road diets and um, engineering planning going into place in the city that are consistent with, um, with um, our city's effort to reduce speed. Um, and it shows how engineering fits in with education and enforcement as an overall strategy that we're using in the city. But thank you. Thank you. Um, colleagues, with, with that, let's now um, go to public comment. And I know that we have a number of cards of people that have signed up to speak. Nicole Schneider from WACSF, 
um, Kevin Stoll from the Central City SRO Collaborative, Tyler Frisbee of the San Francisco Bicycle Coalition as well. If there's anyone else that would like to speak, please come forward. And thank you to Ms. Schneider for championing um, Safer Streets and Vision Zero as well. Thank you, Supervisor Martin. Thank you, Supervisor Campos. Um, I also want to thank our, the Budget and Legislative Analyst Office. I know you guys have been working hard and can't say enough about our city leaders that spoke here today. Um, I work with these folks every day, and they're really committed to this goal and um, can't vouch for how well seasoned they are in their respective areas. Um, and I think, as you heard today, the fixing traffic safety and ending what's happening on our street, which has become an epidemic where we have literally seen, um, you know, we have every other day we have a serious or fatal traffic injury on our on our streets that ends in either death or disability. Um, this is this has become a public health crisis and an epidemic. So um, I appreciate your leadership and along with um, Supervisors Kim, Yi, and Avalos who helped introduce uh, Vision Zero in San Francisco. I really, you know, I think this is an important next step. And I think what we've seen here today is that there is no silver bullet that all of these strategies are really equally important. Um, and the top strategies in terms of reducing speeds and speed limits are going to be challenging, and they're going to require state-level um, policy changes to allow us to just reduce speed limits on our streets. And um, that's, that's where we're going to look towards you all as leaders here in San Francisco to continue to um, advocate for that at the state level and to continue to make the case for all of those of us on our streets that are walking, biking, taking transit, and driving to make sure that we're safe because these are preventable injuries and we don't need to um, put up with the fact that people are dying or losing limbs on our street. Um, I think the other the other important finding is the automated safety enforcement piece. And um, one study that I that I saw was um, in London where they've implemented it. There was a twenty percent reduction, or sorry, I'm sorry, a seventy percent reduction in fatalities on streets in London that had implemented automated safety enforcement. So this is not just speeds, but it's actual people losing their lives. Um, and we can actually reduce that significantly with automated safety enforcement. Um, so, you know, I know that there has, there have, there are a lot of competing priorities for the police and police department and, um, enforcing, uh, speeding is one, one of the main priorities for them. Um, and they also need help. So, uh, automated safety enforcement would do just that and really um, be targeted towards those streets that we know are not safe as they are and where we know speed is an issue. Um, I'd also like to highlight that these that traffic violence and traffic injuries disproportionately impact our low-income communities and communities of color. And I know um, Megan Weir pointed to that, but um, as we continue to work towards this, um, that is one of our goals as the Vision Zero Coalition, is to reduce, reduce those inequities. Yeah, I just wanted to thank you for focusing on equity like Tom McGuire and, and Megan Weir and others did, so that our Vision Zero is about equity, especially in the lowest income neighborhoods where the highest incidence of um, traffic collisions and deaths are. But thank you so thank much, you. Ms. Schneider. Next speaker.
Hello, um, my name is Kevin Stahl. I'm a pedestrian safety organizer with the Central City SRO Collaborative, as well as a member of the Pedestrian Safety Advisory Committee representing District 6. And as an advocate for uh, pedestrian safety in the low-income neighborhood of the Tenderloin, and also as a resident, I see on an everyday basis of, the, of seniors and disabled, as well as families and children who are all constantly and threatened by the by the actions of drivers who continually to use these uh, streets as uh, as freeways by speeding down them and not and not paying attention to our vulnerable populations that live in this in our in the, our neighborhoods and as as an advocate I can I will continue to fight for to make sure that our these residents are, are safe and as well as all residents are safe. And as San Francisco grows in population, and including our, um, our, our neighborhoods that are more densely populated, we uh, d need more actions to make sure that we are safer as, as well as uh, have, make sure the uh, politi politicians are, hear our cries and fight to make sure that we continue to be a vital part of this uh, city. And I thank you very much for uh, continuing to work on this uh, all this uh, action it is much needed, and I'm surprised that it's taken this long to actually implement something such as Vision Zero. And as a as a longtime resident of San Francisco, I I will thank you so much for paying attention to our needs, and I will continue to work with you all as as long as it takes. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Stoll. Next speaker, Ms. Frisbee. Good afternoon, Supervisors. My name is Tyler Frisbee. I'm the Policy Director at the San Francisco Bicycle Coalition. Uh, first of all, I wanted to say thank you, obviously, Supervisor Marr, uh, for holding this important hearing. Thank you, Vice Supervisor Campos and Supervisor Christensen uh, for being here. Supervisor Christensen, I know this is not your first hearing, but it's the first one where I have gotten to see you behind mm -hmm. the desk, so congratulations again and welcome. Um, this is a critical issue, and you don't need me to tell you any more statistics because you've heard amazing data and research uh, from the MTA and DPH team, um, and you don't need to hear any, and, and the BLA team. So I'm not going to go over that anymore, but I am going to say I hope what you've heard today drives home a very clear reality, which is if we're going to save lives in San Francisco, we need to slow down our streets. And it, it really is that simple. I think the other thing that you have heard is that while that is a clear directive, it requires a multi-pronged approach. It requires changing the street's engineering so that people are paying attention and are encouraged to drive more slowly, and it also requires bumping up our enforcement. Uh, we're very much looking forward to both supporting Commander Mannix and her work as her department uh, increases their focus on the five, but also working at the policy level um, at the state to support the mayor as he goes out um, to look for both the ability to lower speed limits in San Francisco and to apply automated safety enforcement. Those are really critical parts of um, creating a safe environment and a safe culture on our street. We also very much believe that it's critical to engineer our streets correctly in that process, uh, which is where uh, Tom McGuire and, and Ricardo Olea come in and, and their team make a huge difference for the experiences that people have. And as Supervisor Christensen pointed out, those improvements 
don't just impact safety. They often make our streets more vibrant, more attractive places to be. Uh, MTA data suggests that they increase sales revenue on those streets as well. Um, and they help create a neighborhood culture because people feel comfortable being out and about in those public spaces. So as we look uh, particularly on our high energy corridors, on places like Polk Street, on places like our major arterials, um, finding ways to slow down the traffic and uh, help everyone be aware and have that attention is critical both for creating safety but also sort of helping support our neighborhoods during a time of change. Thank, Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Frisbee. Next speaker. Hi. Um, I'm very grateful, Supervisor Mar, that you're having this hearing. Um, I want to let you know, um, about 1978, I moved back to New York. And I got a real taste of what some wild driving is like. And um, my brother warned me about it. And he, you know, true to his word, it was the traffic back there. They, they almost try to run you over. And I, it's not something, it was, I love the city, but that was one thing about it I didn't like. And California never was like that, and where I came from, in L.A. And it's sort of getting that way here now. And I find it to be a little bit off-putting. And I would love if we can change the state law. I think it has to be done at a state level uh, to uh, remedy their situation. But we're also going to have to have the political will to enforce it. Because I, I, th I think that's what it's going to come to. So thank you. Thank you. Is there anyone else that would like to speak? Public comment is closed. Colleagues, are there any closing remarks? Supervisor Campos. I just want to say thank you, uh, Supervisor Marr, for your leadership on this. Thank you to the budget and legislative analysts. And thank you to all the city agencies and the partners that have come out. It's going to take, you know, uh, an effort by everyone involved. Uh, and it's all, you know, about the three things that we have talked about throughout the, the this whole uh, couple of years discussing Vision Zero. It's, you know, it's about education. It's about engineering. It's about enforcement. So uh, I'm very excited, and uh, I look forward to continuing to make progress on this very important issue. Thank you. Thank you, Supervisor Christensen. And I just wanted to say thank you for the um, enlightening remarks from the different speakers. I, I especially liked uh, Mr. McGuire's um, framing of we need to move from a culture of speeding that's identified in the report to a culture of safety and how all the E's need to work together with other tools that we're looking at legislatively in a complex state and city structure. Um, I learned a lot more um, insights into how critical the engineering pieces from Mr. Olea and um, the MTA staff. Um, but as always, the community representatives um, that spoke are urging us to look at this as a, um, as a crisis and an epidemic as we move towards making our Vision Zero process um, um, even stronger so that San Francisco doesn't fall behind the other cities that were identified in the report. Um, I just wanted to thank so much Fred Brousseau and Catherine Angotti for the hard work on this. I know that the report will be shared with others, and I'll make sure that Supervisors um, Avalos, Kim, and Yi, who are working with all of us on Vision Zero, kind of make sure that they have the reports and the the findings and some of the outcomes from this committee. I wanted to also just acknowledge that we'll continue to follow up with the MTA staff and, um, and others to move forward the state level ideas, but also some of the local ideas that came forward today. Um, and thank you to um, Commander Mannix, and I believe it's 
Captain Ozer that have been here for the, the meeting, and we look forward to working with the police department as well. So with that, colleagues, can we, um, is it table this, um, this hearing, or I think that's the, that's the motion. Can we table this hearing? Motion to file. Motion to file without objection. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Evans. Is there any other business before us? There's no more business, Mr. Chair. Thank you, everyone. Meeting adjourned.